Oh my God, this is insane. I have literally 21 pages of notes in the Google Docs. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Season 4, Episode 6 of Acquired, the podcast about technology acquisitions and IPOs. I'm Ben Gilbert. I'm David Rosenthal. And we are your hosts. We sit here today on the day of Uber's long-awaited IPO, and David, let me tell you, I am super pumped to be here today. (laughs) Me as well, Ben. Me as well. (laughs) Well, here, uh, here was my alternate intro, and frankly, I have a few here. We covered Pinterest and Lyft recently, both valued at about $15 billion. Today, we are covering a company who has raised over $20 billion in Uber. Or perhaps this third, Uber just raised $8 billion, or approximately one half of Lyft's entire market cap in its IPO. Or maybe this fourth one. Today, we are diving into a company whose epic history is matched only by its epic operating losses with over $3 billion last year, the largest of any company to ever go public. But what you really need to know about Uber, they are a broad multi-mobility transportation platform, a hyper-growth food delivery service that leverages Uber's existing customers and driver assets and an international ride-sharing holding company with enormous chunks of Didi, Yandex Taxi, and Grab and a trucking shipping marketplace called Uber Freight to top it all off. So holy God, David, there is a lot to cover here. I thought we were doing an Uber episode, not a SoftBank episode. (laughs) (laughs) At this point, what's the difference? Uh, What is the difference? Yep. All right, well, listeners, before we dive in, I want to say this past week's limited partner bonus show, we had an incredibly appropriate guest join us for a deep dive on Uber's history, Brian Tolkien. And Brian was one of Uber's first 100 employees, helped start the product operations group, and eventually ran Uber Pool when it was first getting off the ground. And Brian had some really practical insights on how Uber developed their infamous playbooks and launched cities in the early years. So if you like Acquired and you want to go deeper on company building topics, you should totally consider becoming an LP yourself. It's brain dead easy. It takes two taps in 10 seconds, and you can listen right here in your favorite podcast player. And aside from great interviews like Brian, you can also get David and my walkthrough of a term sheet, how VC firms really work, and some of our personal investment theses. You can click the link in the show notes to join or go to glow.fm slash acquired. That's right, glow.fm slash acquired, or click the link right in the show notes from this episode, and everyone gets a one-week trial, so feel free to check it out. Man, so professional. We've come so far. It's great. (laughs) It's funny, we're finding fit in how to actually describe that thing. I think when we first uh, first got started, we, we, we were a little <laughs> all over the place in describing the uh, the LP show. It's all about the ride. It is. It, oh, David. There we go. All, all right. right. <laughs> Lastly, before I dive in, I want to thank the sponsors of all of season four, Perkins Cooey, counsel to great companies. We have with us here today, Allison Handy, a partner in the corporate securities group. Allison, we have talked several times on the show about the increasingly popular dual-class structure in these IPOs, which, interestingly enough, Uber does not have, likely due to the current management not being the founders. I'm not sure if anybody knew Dara is not actually the founder of Uber. You and I were chatting a little bit before this, and you told me something I didn't know about the mechanics of how this dual-class structure often ends up happening. Could you explain this a bit? Sure. So there are a few companies out there that have dual class from the outset. But for a lot of companies, they implement the dual class structure in a recap, maybe in a late stage funding round or right before the IPO. And in that case, 
all of the pre-IPO holders get the super voting stock, not just the founders. So the question for whether to do a recap is whether the post-IPO holdings of the founders will allow them to control shareholder votes on most matters. Other than founders, most pre-IPO shareholders usually divest significant amounts of their holdings within the first couple of years, causing the conversion of their 10-vote Class B shares into one-vote Class A. So the magic number is whether the founders will own at least 9.1% of the post-IPO common stock, which, assuming no other Class B shares are outstanding, gives the founders just over 50% of voting power. Totally fascinating, and thank you, Allison. If you want to learn more about Perkins Coie or reach out to Allison specifically, you can click the link in the show notes or in the Slack. Oof. Okay, David, that is all that I have, I promise, before you take us back to like sometime in the 1400s when we were like just discovering (laughs) transportation or something. (laughs) Oh, man. I wish I were. Have I overshot? I wish I were. Uh, You've overshot, but I'm trying to, I don't remember. I'm trying to think if this is the farthest back we've ever gone. I don't know. Listeners, uh, <laughs> if you remember going back further, let us know. Hit us yeah, up in the Slack. As if there's not enough to talk about in Uber. Let's, let's extend yeah. the history even oh, further Oh, let's in extend. The All right. Here we go. We're starting, appropriately enough, in San Francisco, downtown San Francisco, uh, in the year 1889. <laughs> <laughs> Ben's reaction on video was great there. Okay. So <laughs> a businessman named F.S. Chadbourne, gets off of a ferry at the newly constructed ferry building terminal at the end of Market Street in downtown San Francisco. An amazing place. I love going to the ferry building. It is a beautiful treasure of downtown San Francisco. It was built the year prior in 1888. And he, Chadbourne gets off of his ferry and he hails uh, what is very common back in the day, a horse-drawn carriage that is driven by what is known as a hack to take him where he is going on his business. And this horse-drawn carriage is driven by a man named James Nosy Brown. Why is he called Nosy? We're about to find out. Nosy drives Chadbourne not to where he is supposed to be going, but takes him to an out-of-the-way location, probably in what was then very sketchy Soma, uh, unconfirmed, now also sketchy, home to startups. And um, he holds him up. He says, hey, for me to take you where you're going, I'm going to unclear if he actually threatened his physical safety, but you're going to have to give me more money to take you where you want to go. Chad Morn, he jumps out of the cab, he runs away, but he's really pissed. And he's not just anybody, he is a wealthy muckety-muck, and he has contacts in the city government. Uh-oh. He lobbies them to enact, this is this has been a totally unregulated industry, it was just happening, people uh, who had these hacks, who uh, had... I now know had, where this uh, is going. Yeah, uh, horse-drawn carriages, they would just line up, do whatever they pleased, and he lobbies his friends in the government to enact very strict regulations, and henceforth, in what would come to be known as the Chadbourne, uh, I don't know if it was Act or uh, whatever, uh, regulations, all drivers in San Francisco had to be licensed with a badge, and that badge number had to match the vehicle's number. Mm. And uh, I think it was in a city ordinance. It gets named after himself. We jump a couple short years later to New York City, where most people in America think of the center of the cab industry and indeed would become fully 50% of the entire taxi industry in the U.S. In 1907, where the first 
cars, the first motorized cabs, uh, arrive in New York City, and a businessman named Henry Allen imports them from France, and he starts the first cab company, the first network of drivers, a, a transportation network company, if you will. And uh, he <laughs> he um, he hires a bunch of drivers. He has huge success. There's tons of demand. This is so much better, so much faster than horse-drawn carriages. It's cheaper. Everybody loves it. This might sound familiar of something that would happen a little over a century later. Um, but one year in, uh, it becomes clear that not all is utopian in this this new transportation model in cities the drivers are unhappy and they go on strike and they argue in their strike that alan had kind of promised them that they were going to be employees they were going to get a pension plan these were going to be great jobs uh he was going to give like all sorts of benefits it is crazy how what a mirror this is history repeats itself over and over again but the reality is they were not employees they were essentially independent contractors and they got charged by the day they got charged 25 cents a day for a uniform rental fee they got charged 10 cents a day for a quote-unquote brass polishing fee (laughs) and then they also had to buy their own gasoline i think i've seen that that brass polishing fee on my uber receipts from time to time (laughs) totally it's amazing this is 1907 and so they strike and this is the beginning of the illustrious history of labor issues in the taxi industry we fast forward a couple decades uh moving quickly here something else that is going to get mirrored again later on in the episode 1929 the stock market crash happens and the great depression begins now what happens when this happens in the great depression people all over the country lose their jobs they're looking for work part-time work anything to make some money to get by and what is a relatively flexible easy to start low amount of training job that you can do especially in new york city you can become a cab driver so this becomes the backup job for a lot of these people who lost their jobs on wall street or you know in other industries in the in the stock market crash in the depression so much so that car dealers you know they can't sell cars to people who are buying them for their personal luxury transportation vehicles they start marketing cars to these newly unemployed as job creators buy a car get a job you can start driving your own taxi cab <laughs> wow there's like a reminiscent thing of airbnb here too where it's totally yeah it's the very same issue that cities are having with you know people taking houses out of the supply market to be rented um is happening with cars at this point. It's happening with cars. And so what does this result in? This results in a huge oversupply of taxi cabs on the streets in New York because a demand for taxi rides is down because everybody's losing their jobs. Supply is through the roof because everybody who just lost their jobs is Mm -hmm. now trying to become a taxi cab driver. And it becomes a total race to the bottom. Fares plummet through the the floor. Nobody can make any money and it becomes a huge problem. The the streets are congested with cabs. Mm -hmm. What does New York City respond with uh, and other cities around the country? They respond with basically creating the medallion system and a bunch of other regulations around it, which limits the number of licensed taxis that can operate in cities, especially New York City, but also San Francisco and other big cities at any given point in time. And that continues to this day. That is the taxi industry. But what happened to all of these other people who had gone out and bought cars and now they were no longer able to operate Mm. they don't just go away this weird interesting sort of shadow market develops in cities where these people are no longer regulated taxi cab drivers approved by the city and but the regulations for for taxis 
centered around meters. So you would hail the taxi and then you would pay a time and mileage fare that was measured and regulated by the city as you would go. But there was nothing that stopped people on their own from offering flat rate services. So if you pre-negotiate a rate of where the ride is going and pay it up front, then you can do that outside of the existing system. And this is the beginning of what was first called sedan service, then becomes the is this limo hire industry this is the for hire mm. industry as you know sedan limo black car is eventually what it mostly becomes known as and and then as we'll see there's kind of some sketchiness that develops in this industry and it, it becomes a, an, a derogatory term sort of known as the gypsy cab industry and so this becomes like these two markets, the official regulated taxi market in cities in the U.S. and then the black car market, the for hire market kind of develop in tandem over the next hundred years. And the taxi cab industry is highly regulated and the for hire market is relatively less regulated. There are some kind of sustaining innovations in Clay Christensen terms, but nothing disruptive. The sustaining innovations uh, in the 40s, 1940s, radio dispatch is introduced. So there's no there's no coordination uh, system. In the early days, you just hail a cab on the street. Finally, radio dispatch is invented in the 40s. Which for anybody who's ever tried to hail a cab through the radio dispatch system, you know Oof. exactly how well that works. Exactly. And then computerized dispatch in the 80s. But the problem is the taxi drivers are still independent contractors. So it's kind of like a suggestion. You know, if they a dispatch goes out on the radio or on the computer system to somebody who needs a ride from a given location to a given destination, it's optional whether you go get them. If you see a fare on the street along the way, you can just pull over and pick them up instead. Mm -hmm. So this kind of uh, a San Francisco taxi driver named John Han wrote a blog post in 2011, right after Uber and Taxi Magic and Cabulous and all the other companies we'll get into has launched. And he kind of describes the current situation. He says, you don't have to respond to a radio call if you don't want to. Remember, dispatch service, we are told, is just a quote-unquote information referral service. This is due to complications that have arisen from independent contractor status. I guess what that means is that dispatch service doesn't legally entitle any public passenger in any way to a taxi cab that they've just ordered by phone. <laughs> they can call, but they're not guaranteed to get one. It only guarantees that their information will be dispatched to us drivers <laughs> so that their request will be made known to us. All right, this you can, a lot. <laughs> you can service radio orders if you'd like. I do. I like them. But I guess you could just as well take one and leave the passenger hanging on the phone for fun as a prank. So long as you see another fare on the street that could be better anyway and then he's like i don't actually do this but in theory i could <laughs> i'm just making a point and anybody who is old enough to remember the world before uber and lyft and sidecar and dd and everybody else that really was how it worked and it was awful <laughs> new york was probably the best american city the most efficient cab market but any other city in particularly san francisco it was impossible to get a ride as a passenger. And drivers, they kind of do okay here. I mean, they're the ones, the, the cab companies and the drivers are the ones who are always lobbying to sustain the regulation that uh, keeps the industry dynamics like this. But it's not like the drivers are doing great either. There's strikes all the time. There's tons of labor and rest. And the industry kind of tick-tocks between drivers doing sort of okay to drivers doing really poorly. Hmm. The, the industry is completely broken. That goes on for a century. <laughs> and then we fast forward to 2008. And two super critical things happened in 2008 that completely change the course of this market. One, as we have talked about 
many times in the last couple months here on the show, Lehman Brothers goes bankrupt and the Great Recession begins. We're going to come back to that, but this the dynamics of what happened here totally mirror what happened 70 years prior in the hmm. stock market crash hmm. and the Great Recession. But unlike then, there is another thing that happens, and that is in that in 2008, Apple introduces third-party apps for the iPhone with iPhone OS 2.0. That definitely did not exist in 1929. Yeah. iPhone 3G and iPhone OS. It was not iOS yet. That's right. There was no iPad. iPhone OS 2.0. So right around this time, a Virginia-based entrepreneur named Tom DePascale decides that these... I don't think he was necessarily thinking about the effects of the Great Recession and the Lehman Brothers collapse, but he definitely was thinking about iPhone OS 2.0 and says this is the wedge to finally bring some modern customer <laughs> centric innovation to the city transportation and, and taxi industry. And Tom uh, had previously started a software company that was a travel booking tool and it was acquired by Concur, a Seattle company and a great uh, technology company. So he had left Concur and he starts this new company. He calls it Taxi Magic. And his co-founder, interestingly enough, is a guy named George Arison. Uh, I know George. George is, uh, many years later, has become the CEO of Shift, the used car marketplace uh, mm. here in San Francisco. Uh, can't it's amazing. It. Yeah, can't it's amazing how much we talk about so much on this show, how small all of these little subworlds in technology are. And in, in Taxi Magic, they're, they're doing a logical thing of saying, gosh, there's all these taxis, like there should be a better interface to hail them. There should be a better interface to hail them. Yep. And the other thing that consumers hated, and I remember this, you could do it in New York, but not anywhere else, is pay for the yeah. rides with Ugh. credit cards. <laughs> uh, you needed to have cash to pay for your taxi rides in all every city and in plenty of cabs in New York too. So Tom and Taxi Magic, they're like, okay, with this computer in your pocket, <laughs> you can have a better interface for ordering and dispatching the cabs. And you can also take payment via credit cards uh, that are built in to this you know, computer in your pocket and, and pay for them. And it worked great. People loved it. It was, I mean, I remember using Taxi Magic around this time. It was fantastic. In, in every city except New York and America, it was a like huge revolution, especially in LA, um, where uh, Jenny was doing her PhD at UCLA in the time. And we used it all the time there. Hmm. But there was just like so many companies that start at the very beginning of a wave, they got one big thing wrong. And that was that they worked within the existing system. So Taxi Magic, of course, worked with Taxi, worked with, wor wor taxis worked with the cab companies. Mm -hmm. And so that meant a couple things that were just sort of big problems. So one, what the blog post described about how dispatching worked still applied to Taxi Magic even though it was now done in a more friendly consumer facing way, uh, when a consumer would make a request, it was just a suggestion that went out to all of the drivers in that taxi company's network. And the ride wouldn't get assigned to whoever had first dibs on it was not who was closest to the customer. It was the driver that had been waiting the longest in the queue. <laughs> <laughs> so if you think about like any city, but even Los Angeles where Taxi Magic was most popular, LA is a huge city. It can take two hours to get across the city with traffic and you're getting rides assigned based on where you are in the queue. <laughs> this is how bad the world was before all of these transportation network companies that like that was progress, you know? <laughs> right. um, 
And of course, the problem still existed that uh, if a taxi magic cab was on the way to pick up a customer and they saw somebody else on the street, they could still just pick up the person on the street and cancel the ride. Boy, it really shows how much power is on the supply side and how little power is on the demand side, where even with a, a user interface innovation like that, they're still meeting the needs of the supply side, which is you've been waiting a long time. You deserve a fare. You deserve a fare. Yep, absolutely. So nonetheless, like I said, though, this was like a drop of water in the desert. Consumers loved it. Concur ended up investing in the company. It's still based in Virginia. It quickly expands to 25 cities around the country. And the next year in 2009, a certain venture capitalist who is going to come to play a very large role in this story (laughs) had been thinking for quite a while about the taxi and the transportation space. And he had invested in some other companies that had taken a marketplace approach to disrupting things like restaurant reservations and reviews online. And he'd been thinking about there's time might be right for an online marketplace Mm. for taxis. It was, of course, Bill Gurley at Benchmark. And Bill heard about Taxi Magic and Tom. And Tom, of course, was a known entrepreneur. Bill flies out to Virginia from Silicon Valley. And he says, this is what I'm looking for. I want to invest in your company. I want Benchmark to lead your Series A. Concur had had invested a little bit of money before. I'm offering, I'm going to invest $8 million at a $32 million valuation for the company. He says, but I think we need to think about expanding out of the taxi market and into the black car market, bring them on as well, because all of the things I was just describing about the taxi market are kind of limiting and you might be able to solve that in the black car market. And we could just have a new version of the product. We can keep taxi magic. Let's create a new version of the product also called limo magic. You could see how if you're if you're the founder of a company and you have a pretty dead set vision of exactly how you think you're going to run your playbook, how this could be a little jarring. A little jarring. And we have to say huge thank you to friend of the show, Brad Stone, uh, and his book, The Upstarts, where he chronicles all of this. Uh, we're going to refer to Brad many times on this episode. Tom, exactly, Ben, as you say, he says, okay, you know, uh, I appreciate what? the offer, but like, <laughs> this is my company. I'm a second time entrepreneur. I know what I'm doing here. Uh, thank you, Bill. You're great. Benchmark is great. I'm not going to take your money. <laughs> he declines the investment. And that obviously turns out to be the wrong decision <laughs> on on both declining the investment and not doing limo magic. Taxi magic ultimately would go on to change its name to Curb. If you came across Curb in the last few years, uh, and it would get sold to Verifone, which is the company that provides the credit card payment terminals <laughs> to the back of cabs <laughs> in, a, in a fire sale. So not the trajectory of what would become Uber. There's another company though that gets started right around this time, sees the same vision. This one isn't even better story so back in I'm, 2008 I'm this is not uber <laughs> well I'll, let, I'll start telling the story and i'll let i'll let you and listeners judge right. whether it is or isn't all right back in 2008 in los angeles if you know the history of uber you might know a little bit about los angeles one of the great american corporations the best buy company best buy corporation had set up an in-house incubator in la i think best buy is based in utah right um i don't know believe that's where their headquarters is but they'd set up an innovation incubator in los angeles and the idea was that retail employees this was like this was pre-recession when they set it up this was a marketing thing retail employees at best buy stores could apply to the incubator with their startup ideas and if they got selected to join the incubator best buy would pay for them to move to la for two months and work on it uh work on their idea 
uh, in LA for two months and then they'd go back to working on the retail floor. Two (laughs) months. I know, it's completely nutty. This is completely nutty. (laughs) So a Geek Squad technician named Daniel Garcia had the idea that consumers should be able to see their Geek Squad cars on a map as it was coming to their house and that this new ability to build applications for iPhone, third-party applications for iPhone, they could build a Geek Squad app that would allow consumers to know, you know, see and track when their Geek Squad uh, service was arriving. So he goes, he applies to the incubator, he gets in. Uh, and um, the head of the incubator was a guy named John Wolpert. And John and Daniel kind of realize um, partway through that this, like, this is okay, like, doesn't move the needle on Geek Squad or for Best Buy. But if they applied this to the taxi industry more broadly, there might be something interesting here. And um, so they're riffing on on what they could call it. And it's you know, super fabulous, uh, this idea. They decided, great, we're going to call it Cabulous. <laughs> uh, fabulous Cabulous. And Wolpert, the head of the incubator, uh, he was a former IBM guy. And he starts to realize as they're digging into this, like, oh, wow, this is this is big. And the time is now. And of course, it's 2008. Things are starting to go south in the economy and Best Buy is hurt more than anybody uh well not more than any not more than the banks but They're second to the bad. banks yeah. are like the car companies and the you know retailers and so they say large consumer electronics retailers well, particularly large consumer electronics retailers exactly and so best buy wolpert goes to the corporate execs at best buy and he says hey you don't want to be supporting this incubator anymore you need to cut costs i want to work on this can i just take this idea cavulus out of the incubator move to san francisco and start building it and working on it and they're like yeah sure take it spin it out they don't even take any equity they're yeah, like I don't just get out time of here for this meeting right now yeah exactly like my hair is on fire so <laughs> they uh they let it go. And uh, Wolpert, and I, b- I believe Daniel too, Garcia, moved to San Francisco and they start, they built the company. They start working on Cabulous. They raise a small angel round and they get a call. Uh, Wolpert gets a call one day. Just, uh, I, I, knowing Bill, I know this is exactly how he operates. He just gets a call. Wolpert's never talked to Bill Gurley before. He picks up the phone and it's Bill Gurley. And um, Wolpert and Gurley says, Hey, I hear you're, uh, I heard about what you're doing. I'm very interested. Uh, I hear you are fundraising right now. I would like to talk to you about it. And Wolpert says, you know, we're only raising a very small angel amount. I know, you know, I don't know if Gurley or, or Wolpert says this, you know, Benchmark doesn't do seed. They, Series A firm, they invest larger checks. Uh, and unlike most other Series A firms, they basically really mean it when they don't do seed investing. Um, and so <laughs> Wolpert says, yeah, you know, we'll talk later. I really think I just want to raise a small amount right now and Gurley says okay what I'll talk is to you with later. these people turning down bill Gurley? like what are you doing i don't know <laughs> well it was probably well, debatable as we go on through the story but uh for several years it was probably the best thing and, and 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 still to this day the best thing for bill and benchmark that all these people did turn them down um <laughs> so they raise a small angel round we'll come back to all the history behind this meeting but um eventually while they're up in san francisco they get a they get a call another call from um, uh, two guys that want to meet that are also working in the transportation industry, two guys named Ryan Graves and Travis Kalanick that uh, want to go take them out to lunch and meet with them and understand what their roadmap is and um, where they're planning to go with this cabulous thing, and so the three of those guys three those three men sit down to lunch and, and Ryan kind of says, um, "Hey, so are you going to stay in the taxi industry or are you thinking about the black car industry?" 
And Wolpert says, oh, no, 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 no. We're going to stay in the taxi industry. We're going to do this with the existing system. We're going to work with the taxi companies. This is a highly regulated industry. This is the only way to go. And Ryan and Travis say, thank you very much. They pay for lunch and they walk out. <laughs> we'll, we'll put a pin in that and come back to it later. But that is the Cabulous would eventually be rebrand as Flywheel. Uh, so if you see many of the taxis in San Francisco owned by the DeSoto Cab Company, they did a partnership with Flywheel and they still exist. And it is a ordering and dispatch system it's, for it's taxis. It's w- one of the best ways to order in an actual taxi. It is. It is. Unfortunately for them, that, that is not the big market anymore. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so who are Ryan and Travis? People probably know who Travis is, but what is going on here? Let's come back to the black car industry. Okay, so it seems obvious. We've just told you this whole history. And so many people, so many entrepreneurs, so many venture capitalists had been wanting to disrupt and innovate in transportation. Everybody knew this was broken. This was obvious. Why hadn't people looked at the black car industry before way less regulation in in many states including california it was regulated at the state level not at the city level so if you to the extent you did have to deal with regulation it was a far easier path what were the barriers seems like way lower barriers to entry well here's why because every time somebody did try to go innovate in the black car industry this is what would happen so people might know about a company named seamless web Uh, So there was a young corporate lawyer in New York in the late 90s named Jason Finger, and he was eating, uh, this will also come back, he was uh, a, a, uh, like many people in banks and law firms in New York in those days, would eat dinner every night in the office while he was working, and the ordering system for ordering food and having food delivery delivered was nuts. And so he came up with this idea of how to organize and deliver food in cities, started Seamless Web. It became huge. I used it every night when I was in banking in New York. It eventually merged with Grubhub, uh, is now part of Grubhub, one of the one of the largest food delivery services in the US. But Jason thought, like, while well, he was a couple years into working on Seamless, he thought, well, the other thing that lawyers and bankers do in New York is they order black cars. And <laughs> there was this opportunity to use the internet to make meal delivery much better. I could do the same thing with all the black cars that people use. And so he actually started working on it. And his idea was that there was going to be Seamless, the core product, the meal delivery product was going to become Seamless Meals. And then he was also going to build seamless wheels. And so he talked to a couple black car companies. He got some supply on board. He was talking to banks and law firms about using it. And then one day he comes into work and there's a voicemail on his phone in the morning. And he and, and, uh, and David, I'll, I'll stop you here for a moment and say, gosh, you know, food delivery and ride coordinating on a platform. That sounds like a really good idea to combine those two. Yeah, man. I mean, why wouldn't you do both of those <laughs> on the same platform? <laughs> um so he, he gets into the office and he's got the flashing light on his phone. This is like the early 2000s. Oh, yeah. And uh, he plays the voicemail and it's from, a, it's from a, a blocked number. So he can't tell what the number's from. And the voicemail says, uh, he tells this to Bradstone in the upstarts, Jason, we understand you've been pitching a car service to large enterprises in the New York City area. We don't think that would be a good idea. You've got such a beautiful family. Why don't you spend more time with your beautiful baby daughter? You've got such a good thing going with your food business. Why would you want to broaden into other areas? Click. <laughs> and um, wow. as you can imagine, and uh, if you hadn't put two and two together, uh, lightly regulated industry growing up in New York City over the past century, 
companies, a fragmented and uh, not super visible array of companies that operate in them, it's run by the mafia. <laughs> so every time somebody would try and encroach on their turf, and I think this is probably mostly in New York City, but I bet in lots of other cities around the country, some version of this would play out. And so did, uh, did, did Seamless bail on the idea after that? They bailed, yeah, immediately wow. bailed on the idea. The meal delivery was working great. And um, as the voicemail said, you know, Jason had a young family. Like, I, I would do the exact same thing if yep. I were in his position. And uh, so that was the end of Seamless Wheels. <laughs> and, and of course, everything ended up great. Seamless Meals, you know, like we said, ended up merging with Grubhub, is doing great today. But <laughs> so sometimes when you have a situation like that, the only way to break the logjam is just kind of with somebody who doesn't know any better. <laughs> so we come back. Better. <laughs> we come doesn't know or doesn't care. And we've got two people, one who doesn't know and one who doesn't <laughs> care. <laughs> so in the middle of 2008, a Canadian entrepreneur who was in Silicon Valley by this point had started a company back in Canada called Stumble Upon. And this is, of course, Garrett Camp. And of and course, Mark Time, we are what, like 22 minutes into this episode and now discussing <laughs> and now. <laughs> somebody involved in the founding of Uber. Oh, man. <laughs> this is, uh, uh, apologies for all this backstory, but I think it's super important. And like, oh, as we've seen, yeah. this, all of this history that's played out over 100 years and then over 10 years is going to play out again. <laughs> so Garrett had still sold stumble upon uh he had started some stumble upon back in canada he had sold it to ebay and stumble upon was um stumble upon was content discovery on the internet and he had sold it to ebay the past summer in 2007 for 75 million dollars <laughs> by the way we covered this in our skype episode but like ebay went through like this yeah <laughs> uh, drunken binge of buying all of these companies that did not make sense and of course who was the largest venture capital backer of ebay it was benchmark benchmark and uh as chronicled in uh the great book eboys which i think we've recommended many times on this yep. show so, uh so ebay drunk on um <laughs> on their market cap <laughs> acquired skype insane business model of never holding yep. any inventory on anything and you can buy you know it's 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 um still are you saying still marketplace day, business kind of, models are a good idea then <laughs> kind of mind-blowing that amazon beat them uh well i would i mean eBay's still doing good, but yes yes different um the power of marketplace business models ebay acquires stumble upon for 75 million dollars garrett is like nominally working at ebay sort of he ends up just leaving ebay he's moved to san francisco he's still he's young he's single he's doing what any <laughs> maybe not any but uh, you could imagine somebody a young single man who's just come to a big city like san francisco and has millions and millions of dollars would do he hangs out all day watching James Bond movies during the day and going out in to nightclubs and partying Why at not? night. Why not? <laughs> Why not? And he's like 26, uh, 27, something like that. Yeah, mid 20s. And he'd, you know, he'd been working really hard on Stumble Upon for, for a little while and coming to this money. And he wanted to, you know, use, enjoy the fruits of, of his labor as, as wouldn't blame, I probably wouldn't make the same decision myself, but that's what he did. I don't know. Uh, dude. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe when I was that age. Well, no, Jenny and I've been together since I was like 20. So no, definitely would not have happened. Anyway, I don't blame him for doing it. But both of those things were really important. He was going out at night, going to nightclubs in San Francisco, having a terrible time getting there and coming back because there were 1500 taxi medallions for all of San Francisco, which is, you know, a major city. And so he couldn't get around. And during the day, he talks about this. He was watching James Bond movies and he was watching Casino Royale. 
And uh, there's this scene in Casino Royale where Bond summons his car with his phone. And this has happened in a bunch of Bond movies, but in the Casino Royale version of this, on his phone, he's watching on the screen on a map as the oh, car yeah, is coming to him. Yeah. And, uh, and Garrett's like, whoa, that's super cool. <laughs> and and at, at this point, he had already flipped the switch in his head to screw this taxi thing i have a good amount of money i'm just gonna hire a black car whenever i want to go anywhere like i'm i'm done with this taxi crap yes he was done with the taxi crap and so what he what he started to do you know and remember it is hard to remember now but i uh, if you were in if you were living in cities in this time the the stigma of the black car industry, the quote unquote gypsy cab industry was super strong. Everybody knew, don't talk to them. These were guys who would be driving cars. They'd roll down their windows as you're on the street. If you're trying to hail a cab, they'd be like, you need a ride where you're trying to go. And everybody's like, don't do that. Don't do that. And uh, so Garrett was like, you know what? How bad can these guys be? So he starts using it a little bit and he finds they're actually not that bad. Like these, these black car drivers, what they're trying to do, they have their scheduled rides that they're doing for the banks and the law firms and, um, that they're getting through limo companies or, you know, prom nights for high schoolers or whatnot. But in between those scheduled rides, they're just trying to make some extra money. And by and large, they're pretty, you know, good people. They're, they're entrepreneurs. And so he, gets like 15 of these guys numbers on his phone and he stops using the taxi industry. He's just call goes through the list when he's, when he's out at night, calls one, then the next says, Hey, you free. Can you come get me? Uh, and he starts building relationships with them. And, uh, so he's like, this is all going through his head. He has the black cars. He sees the James, he sees Casino Royale. He says, why don't I just put two and two together and build what I saw in the James Bond movie, marry it up with my friends who are the black car drivers and have a private driver service on it, my phone. <laughs> it is amazing that it was that both pieces of that puzzle, both going to nightclubs and watching James Bond movies all day, were both requirements in in discovering the <laughs> idea and being able to implement it. I know, I know. <laughs> and um, so he's like, uh, this. Is, he's he's very excited, very very excited about this. And at the time, he's dating a woman named Melody McCloskey, who would go on to become the founder and CEO of Style Seat, and he tells he's talking to melody he's trying to figure out what to call it and garrett would had this uh this turn of phrase i don't know if this is from being canadian or just what but when things were like really great and he really thought it was awesome he would call it uber so he would say like you know if uh, if he had like a really great coffee at you know sight glass or whatever said man that was an uber coffee yeah. <laughs> and um and so he and melody were were talking and he said you know and, uh, this is a quote in in the upstarts in, in brad's book he says uber it means great things it means greatness and that's what he decides to call this service uber he calls it uber cab and he it's... registers the domain name in august of 2008 so funny that in this A plus era that we're in and, you know, all these big IPOs that um, Uber or the most or the greatest or the top or the biggest, you know, is is exactly that. Like it's an, a very aptly named company. Very, very aptly named. So his initial idea, though, he's got this network of drivers and he uses this. He has lots of other friends who are, you know, part of the the kind of new web 2.0 era entrepreneurs in San Francisco. He thinks they would like to use this too, this private driver network. And his idea is he's going to go to sign up these um, sedan drivers that he knows. And then he's going to buy a fleet of cars. He's going to have his own, basically his own black car company. He wants to buy a fleet of Mercedes S class <laughs> cars and then 
Lisa garage in San Francisco and kind of keep them as his private network that he and his friends would use. And so he asks, this is great. He asks, he's friends with Tim Ferriss, the uh, angel investor and now a uh, big podcaster. And he asks Tim Ferriss's assistant to help him research the industry <laughs> and figure out, you know, can he do this? And um, turns out he can. So this is now at the end of 2008 and all of these ideas are spinning in his head. And Garrett goes off with a bunch of his friends to Paris at the end of 2008 to the big Le Web conference. And he's, um, he's, he's going there because he wants to go to the conference, but also his good buddy, fellow entrepreneur who has recently sold his company, Travis Kalanick, is hosting a bunch of San Francisco entrepreneurs in a really, really cool Uber, one might say, apartment that he has rented out in Paris on the VRBO website. Which should surprise no one. Like this is, <laughs> it's like the, the very first thing we learn about Travis in this story is that he has like a swank apartment for a bunch of his like wealthy friends coming in from another city to like have this unique experience. Like you can already get a picture. And the super amazing thing about this is why would, he was doing this because A, that fits with his personality, but B, he was thinking about his next startup idea and unclear if he had heard about Airbnb, but he thought that a network of luxury residences around the world that people might have access to, kind of like you know the private homes versus yeah. the private driver, might be a pretty good idea. And so he was traveling around the world and looking for any excuse to go to conferences, tech conferences around the world, and rent out the fanciest places he could find on VRBO because he was trying to figure out if he wanted to start a company. And doing of course, that. very unlikely he had heard of Airbnb because these companies were started within three months of each other. And of course, Airbnb at this time, you know, was very far <laughs> from anything luxury. Brian, Nate, and Joe were not hanging out with the crowd that uh, Garrett and Travis <laughs> were running in. <laughs> that is for sure. <laughs> okay. So let's say a little bit more about Travis. Travis is a guy who right before he officially became the CEO of Uber, he gave a, a talk on YouTube that we'll, we'll link to. And actually a couple listeners sent to us, which was really great. Yeah, uh, and you. he introduced himself in the talk as he says, I like to think of myself as the wolf in Pulp Fiction. <laughs> uh, he is an interesting, interesting character. And I would say... After having now done many, many hours of research on Travis, I think that is a very accurate characterization. He has <laughs> incredibly all self-aware. Of, all of the good and bad qualities of the wolf in Pulp Fiction. And if you haven't seen Pulp Fiction, it's an amazing movie. I, I would assume most listeners have. But go see it and you'll know what we're talking about. So Travis, he grew up in LA, hence the LA connections for Uber. He was born in 1976 in a suburb in the San Fernando Valley outside of LA. His father... Don had served in the army and was a civil engineer for the city of Los Angeles. So some like maybe DNA in the family of thinking about city infrastructure. His mother, Bonnie, sold ads for the newspaper, the Los Angeles Daily News. And Travis was super smart. And, and this is something that comes through that I think has gotten lost in the story of Uber and, and Travis over the last two years. He is incredibly smart and very much a human as we will see and very fallible but very smart and so the lore is when he was growing up in middle school he got extremely good grades he was top of his class and everything and in middle school he was bullied because of that 
And apparently he made a decision one day in middle school to stand up to the bullies that he wasn't going to take it anymore. And the way he was going to deal with the bullies is he was going to become hyper aggressive and give it right back to them. And, you know, that is kind of how things go. He, he also was naturally quite athletic. He played uh, football in high school. He ended up running track. He was an excellent track runner in high school. He essentially turned himself into a jock, but he didn't stop studying either uh, and, uh, and turn off his brain. And so while he was still in high school, when he took the SATs, he got a 1580 on the SATs. He aced the math section, uh, got an 800 on math and a 780 on verbal. And this is I really telling you. Like, it's just, it's, uh, this also says something about the guy that we know these numbers. Like, I, I would Oh, never, he's, like, he's very, he's you... very vocal about the numbers. Yes. <laughs> because he started, uh, on the back of this, he started an SAT prep company to help other kids yeah, in the area and make some, and profit off of this. <laughs> and I, I believe the, not the name of the company, but the class he taught was something like above 1500 or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and uh, this is great. What he's giving it, in an interview later, he would talk. About, he talked about this, and he said, "You know, the math. Like, it would be a thirty-minute math section. And I would be done in eight minutes. Uh, the fact that he timed himself to eight minutes too is incredible. But then yeah. the verbal was super hard for him, and he had to like he had to develop systems to make it work. And he and he said, when I would do the verbal, my shoulders would hurt and my neck would hurt. It would be so hard on himself. But uh, but he persevered and he managed to do it. And he taught systems to his his students to do the same. So on the back of that score, he goes to UCLA, incredible school. He becomes a CS major. And this is in the late 90s. And he drops out in 1998 to start a startup because this is the dot-com go, go, go days. He and a bunch of classmates start a startup called Scour. Now, this is super important. This is like the in the Tesla episode, the equivalent of where you start learning about what it is that made Elon, Elon. Yeah. This is what makes Travis, Travis. He, uh, much like Elon's first company. So what was this company started? It was called Scour. It was a ripoff of, a ripoff of Napster. But there were a couple particulars about it also so can we we talk about how the roots of facebook and uber both have a p2p file music sharing thing with wirehog and scour at their uh their earliest days absolutely it's uh uh i I think it says a lot about entrepreneurs in in a time where uh when you see a problem that is possible to exploit even in a gray, if not very much crossing the line area, like the most aggressive just can't help but go and exploit that thing. And this was the era where you absolutely could exploit with peer-to-peer file transfer. Absolutely. And, and you know, I think probably much like Uber and, well, not Uber specifically in the early days, but then the peer-to-peer true ride-sharing uh, industry that becomes the big industry that we talked about on the Lyft IPO episode, it's not entirely clear that it's like wrong to do this. Right. And ultimately be, probably better for the, there would be no Spotify if there were no Napster. hundred percent. And you know, could be sharing anything on there too. It's not necessarily like explicitly designed to rip off music. Yeah. Okay. So you nailed one of the key things that is different about Scour versus Napster. There are two. One is that Scour, whereas Napster was architected peer-to-peer file sharing architected specifically for music scour was meant to scour your hard drive and be for anything Ah. any file and what would people want to share besides music well they might want to share videos (laughs) and movies and so the other thing that was very different about scour was it was based in los angeles and what is the big industry in los angeles it's 
the movie industry. <laughs> so this is, uh, you know, like I said, the dot-com days, the go, go, go. Who hears about Scour? Michael Ovitz. <laughs> now, this might ring some bells for, for listeners. I don't think we've talked about this too much on the show before, no. but Michael Ovitz was the famed super agent who started Creative Artists Agency, CAA. He then went on and became the president of Disney for two years, well, kind of co-running Disney with Michael Eisner, who was CEO. They fought and Michael Eisner ended up ousting him after two years. But Ovitz and CAA became the inspiration for Andreessen Horowitz and how mm-hmm. how Ovitz architected CAA to have the artist at the center and then all of the suite of services that a talent agency could surround the artist. That was the blueprint for how Mark and Ben envisioned Andreessen Horowitz when they started and really what that's become. So <laughs> Ovitz has just been ousted from Disney by Eisner and he's looking for, you know, looking around, making some investments, trying to decide what he's going to do next. He hears about Scour. Boy, these hyper successful people looking around for their next thing sure are dangerous for these stories. Sure are dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> so he hears about Scour and he, along with his buddy, fellow LA billionaire, Ron Burkle, they meet with the Scour team of these dropouts from UCLA computer science department who fit you know the mold to a t and they say all right guys we want to invest in your company and uh, we're going to give you four million dollars which was a lot back then even in the go-go days and we're going to give you four million dollars but we're going to do it we're going to buy 51 percent of the company for four million dollars <laughs> <laughs> this is like and an espn style first investment totally totally and and travis and and his co-founders they're pretty naive and they're like well this is cool michael ovitz and ron burkle want to invest in our company like yeah let's do this yep. so they sign a term sheet but ovitz was also known for playing hardball so what happens next this is like it is amazing how much this this foreshadows what is going to come with uber they sign the term sheet after they sign the term sheet ovitz delays funding the company and travis and his co-founders are like what's, what's up like like we signed the term sheet we're ready to go wire the money, we'll give you 51% of the company. Ovitz starts trying to retrade on the deal. And he was you know, famous for being a tough negotiator. And so he locked up Scour uh, with the term she signed and he wanted to get even more of the company. So months go by, they're deadlocked in negotiations. Travis in you know, what will become a, a Travis signature here, he's not gonna budge. Ultimately, after a bunch of months go by and the exclusivity period on the term sheet had expired, uh, Travis and his co-founders go out and they start talking to other people about investing in the company. Also, can Ovitz, we just, the, the, I just want to pause and say, what that is exactly the wrong mindset for for early stage. Companies are so fragile uh, at that point that like the, zero people should be in value capture mode because there's nothing to capture. Like you have to well, be in value creation mode. A hundred percent. I mean, this would not fly today, but I mean, also like, uh, <laughs> I completely agree. This is absolutely wrong. We're talking about Michael Ovitz here. He just left Disney. Like he's used to, he he's accustomed to, to negotiations yeah. at a at a different stage here. Yeah. <laughs> this is uh this is like bringing a bazooka to a you know a, a sandbox, uh, a <laughs> shovel fight, uh, a sandbox plastic <laughs> shovel fight. So Ovitz flips out and he does what you know his nuclear negotiations. He sues the company. So here we have Travis in his what? very first company. He sues the company to consummate the deal and be able to invest in the company. And Travis like talking later, he's like, what investor <laughs> sues the company so that they can invest Ooh, in the company? <laughs> foreshadowing. Ooh, indeed, indeed. So this is Travis's first, not only CEO experience, but experience with investors and 
quote unquote venture capital. So after this lawsuit, you know, again, these are kids who just dropped out of UCLA. They capitulate, they sign the deal. I, I don't know what terms it actually ended up getting done at, but it is done. And Ovitz and Burkle invest. They control the company. They control the board. But Travis and his co-founders are actually building the thing. And uh, so as we said earlier, the other thing different about Scour versus Snapster is you can share anything and you can share movie files. And they're in LA and Michael Ovitz just funded this company. You can imagine that the Motion Picture Association of America, which also at this point, the Recording Industry Association of America, the RIAA, is like, I believe already sued Napster at this point. They see Scour right in their backyard with Michael Ovitz involved. And they're like, oh, no, (laughs) this is we are not going to go through the same thing that the music industry is going to go through. Mm -hmm. They turn around, they sue Scour. I believe this was it got to this height because of the like a, a per instance violation. They sued Scour for 250 billion dollars that is one <laughs> quarter of a trillion dollars <laughs> that you know travis has got to be like 21 maybe like 22 three ubers yeah exactly like three ubers today <laughs> <laughs> that uh the mpaa sue scour for and obviously they knew they weren't going to pay 250 billion but they were like we are going to sue you into oblivion um and uh and i think more importantly they were sending a message to michael ovitz of hey man you built your career on the interests of artists and like you just funded a piracy company. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so Ovitz, as you would imagine, gets the message <laughs> and uh, he all of a sudden wants nothing to do with Scour. So now according, this is according to Travis. Travis has talked about this in an interview. Supposedly what happens next and Ovitz denies this is that Travis is scheduled to speak at a, a private entrepreneurs conference uh, that Jason Calacanis uh, is putting on in LA and he's going to go on stage and speak. And before he goes on stage, he's seated at a table and somebody comes up to him and suggests to him that if he's going to go up and talk about everything that's going on and he's going to get asked about the lawsuit, he might not want to mention Ovitz's name. And, uh, there might be consequences if he does. <laughs> what is with these veiled threats throughout this episode? I know. <laughs> well, I mean, this is the backdrop to Uber, uh, and um, and of course, this this scares even Travis, uh, and so he goes up and he behaves and you know doesn't talk about uh, Ovitz, uh, and and this is in, in an interview with Jason Jason Calacanis does with Travis after he starts Uber, and Travis is like, oh yeah, I thought I played it cool, and Jason was like, oh man, you were sweating bullets up there. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that happens. The company ends up filing Chapter 11 bankruptcy to get rid of the lawsuit, and then the assets of the company get sold out of bankruptcy. So the company is torched. Like, here's Travis. He has just had this wild experience uh, the company was completely torched. He walks away, thankfully, with no personal liability, but it's over. So what does he do next? He and one of his co-founders from Scour, they go and they say, you know, this technology, it is pretty interesting as a technology. And this is going to mirror other episodes we've had here on Acquired. What if rather than using it with a front end to enable illegal peer-to-peer downloads, we take the same technology and we use it for moving content around on the internet. And who would want to move content around on the internet? Maybe it's those guys who just sued us, the movie studios. Like they're trying to, like online 
uh, online movie distribution isn't there yet, but people are moving content around. There's like a little bit of like their clips that are being played online. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe we can help them with their bandwidth by using peer to peer hosting to enable uh, to enable mm. better bandwidth management for for these uh, movie companies. And, and, and uh, we should we should on a technical note just just make a point to. Um, um, to folks listening that like when you type in a URL right now on the internet, even though it seems like, okay, cool, it goes to the server where that website is hosted and gets it, you know, in the early days of the internet, uh, it had to go literally all the way to the one server where the website was hosted. Yep. Like now things happen much faster because these things are cached all over the place. and They're much closer to you. Not really fully developed at this time. Nope. And uh, Akamai existed, but was just starting to get going. So Travis starts, takes this, says, great, I'm going to start my next company. He calls it Red Swoosh. And it does this. It's a competitor to Akamai focused uh, specifically on on the movie industry. And it is also a wild journey. He ends up running it for, I believe, six or seven years, raises a very, very small amount of money, including from Mark Cuban as an angel. And Travis ends up not taking a salary for four of those six or seven years that he's running the company. He moves back in with his parents and he lives at home in L.A. And eventually, we mentioned Akamai, uh, Akamai ends up acquiring the company and consolidating it into Akamai for $19 million. So finally, at the end of this, it's now 10 full years that Travis has been on this grind, (laughs) starting with dropping out of UCLA. And he's lived with his parents for a long time. Uh, He's had his safety threatened. He's been sued for a quarter of a trillion dollars. Mm -hmm. And he finally has an exit. And he makes, uh, I, I wasn't able to get the final, the, the exact figure, but several million dollars because he hadn't raised too much money uh, out of that $19 million acquisition. Yeah. So the money so, is, is one thing that like that, that, that has happened, but the mold has been cast for, yep. for Travis going forward based on just some traumatic experiences. Incredibly, incredibly traumatic experiences. Um, so he moves to San Francisco at this point. I don't know if he'd already moved to San Francisco or, or as part of the sale to Akamai. He he did. But this is the backdrop that he's operating in now coming into 2008 where he's angel investing. He's having fun. He's going out with Travis also or with uh, with Garrett also in San Francisco. Is he looking for his next thing? He's looking for his next thing. He's <laughs> thinking about this this Airbnb idea. <laughs> and um, And they go to Paris. They're in Paris and... They spend most of the time just Garrett and Travis jamming on these two ideas. Uh, Garrett on his on his James Bond Uber idea, and Travis on his you know luxury apartments around the world idea. And uh, throughout the week that they're there in Paris, they start spending more and more time on the Uber idea. And apparently, according to uh, to Melody, they all all three of them go out to dinner one night at a fancy French restaurant. And in typical French bistro style, they have paper tablecloths on the on the table. And <laughs> Travis and Garrett are so deep in Uber discussions that they fill the entire paper tablecloth throughout dinner with sketching out the unit economics of Uber. <laughs> it's amazing. And Which, do- <laughs> I mean, I want to make some crack here that like maybe they should have sketched the unit economics for uber on something a little bit more high fidelity than a napkin uh, (laughs) what we're seeing today (laughs) well well no no they actually agree and this gets back to travis being really smart so the outcome of that i don't know if it was specifically from that dinner but the outcome of that week is you know garrett was thinking about buying these mercedes and renting a garage a garage and storing them uh, themselves and travis like based on looking at the economics he's like do not buy cars like 
whatever you do, mm. do not buy cars. Use the existing cars that limo drivers, that sedan drivers already have, and just give them iPhones and put the app on there. That's all you need to do, and the economics are going to be so much better. So by the end of the week, he's convinced Garrett not to to not to take the Mercedes approach. And Travis is intrigued enough by what's going on. He says, all right, I'm in. I'm not going to like join. I'm still thinking about other things that I might want to do, my other angel invest uh, investments, but I'll angel invest in this yeah. and I'll be like a super advisor to the company. Yeah, this is my favorite part of this story that like he's like committing, but like to, to what? He's like, well, I'm going <laughs> to yeah. be like active, you know, like I'm going to, yeah, you know, I'm going to like, um, I'm not joining, but I'm in. Yeah. So I believe the idea is that Garrett is really going to run with this. So they get back to San Francisco. This is now January 2009. <laughs> Garrett, though, <laughs> un- well, everybody makes out well. But what happens next is that eBay comes to their senses, gets to the end of their drunken hangover. This is, you know, post stock market crash and the recession. And they're like, why do we own stumble upon? And they decide <laughs> to spin stumble upon back out. And Garrett's like, great, I'm going to come back and be the CEO of stumble upon again. So Uber basically gets put on pause. But Travis is still like pretty interested in it. And so he's like still saying to Garrett, you know, hey, let's let's keep working on this. They make a little progress. They go out, they they talk to the the black car drivers that Garrett already knows. They give them phones. They try it out. They'd contracted with a developer who Garrett knew uh, based in New York City, uh, a guy named Oscar Salazar, who was originally from Mexico. And Oscar built the app in um, in New York City with two contract developers back in Mexico. And so they had this kind of rudimentary app and they try it out and it sort of works. And so they do that over the next year in 2009. And then in January 2010, the two of them decide, hey, there's enough here to actually start a company. We don't really want to run it. You know, we're, <laughs> we're still enjoying our lifestyles. But what if we recruited somebody to come in and run this company? And so on January 5th, 2010, Travis tweets one of the most infamous tweets, famous and infamous tweets in Twitter and all of internet history. He tweets, quote, looking for, number four, entrepreneurial product manager slash biz dev killer for a location-based service, dot, dot, dot. Pre-launch, big, all caps, big, big. equity, big equity, big peeps involved, dash, any tips, all caps, <laughs> question mark, question mark. And before getting into where this leads, can we just talk about how broad of a description that is? It's a yeah. product, what, biz dev killer? Right. Also, I mean, people in, in Silicon Valley circles, and entrepreneurial circles, you know, knew Travis at this point, but like the broader Twitter, like who is Travis and what is this, what is this tweet? What is big. going on here? It's big. Nonetheless, in the most fateful Twitter reply to this point in Twitter history, in Chicago, a 27-year-old GE employee who's in the GE Management uh, Development Rotational Program, which is a fantastic program, a really smart young guy named Ryan Graves, and a, sees uh, the Miami tweet of on Ohio Twitter. graduate. Indeed, indeed, Ohio Midwest strong. He sees the tweet and he replies, "Quote: Here's a tip: Email me." <laughs> Smiley face. <laughs> graves.ryan at gmail.com <laughs> and that uh with those two fateful tweets a couple weeks later can we say graves... his email address like that on the show 
What's well, I mean, on? It's it on, was Twitter. on Twitter. So yeah. <laughs> it, it may or may not be his his email address anymore. And, and Ryan, of course, now has a has a family office, Salt Order Capital, which are great investors. We're co investors with them and a few companies here at Wave. Big fans of them. He moves out to San Francisco from Chicago. Now Ryan's married. His wife is a school teacher in Chicago, but he sees this is the opportunity. This is his shot, and so he moves out to San Francisco and he becomes Uber's first CEO. Travis and Garrett bring him on. And uh, that's apparently what the uh, definition of a biz dev killer, product, yeah, <laughs> whatever it is. I would love that's to. Actually <laughs> I would love to ask them how did how did that that tweet turn into CEO? We 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 may never know, but he yep. becomes the first CEO of what is at this point Uber Cab. So he and Travis start going around the city. They're signing up more black car, black cab companies and drivers. In June 2010, they officially launch the non-beta consumer facing app. Uh, rider app to riders. They have about 10 cars on the platforms. The app is live in the iOS app store. There are 10 black cars on the platform in San Francisco. And they go out to raise a seed round on AngelList, which had just gotten started as well. And uh, so they, the email blast gets sent out on AngelList. And the description is that Garrett, Travis, and Tim Ferriss are investors and advisors. Ryan Graves is the CEO and only employee of the company. <laughs> um, and it gets blasted out to, I think, something like 170, 175 investors. So lots of people see it. Most people don't respond. Some people respond and want to invest, including first round capital, uh, Rob Hayes, which who leads the round, writes a $600,000 check. Chris Saka invests, invests 300K. Mitch Kapoor invests. Jason Calacanis, who we talk, uh, invests. Friend of the show, Alfred Lin, uh, who uh, was still at Zappos, had not joined Sequoia yet. He invests in the round. And... Once again, they get another call. I, I think this was probably a response. To the By email. the way, this is like a crazy superstar party round. Like, I mean, you totally you, you look. It's it's the who's who on the sort of advisory, team, you know, founding ish team, and the who's who in this initial angel round. Yep, totally. Well, you've got two, you know, proven entrepreneurs who are not running the company, <laughs> but you know, as an investor, you're like, well, maybe yeah. maybe they might run the company. We'll, we'll we'll see. They get another response to the email though, and it is once again. Bill Gurley, he sees he either sees or hears about this round that's happening, and he takes Travis and Ryan out to dinner, and says, "All right, tell me your plans. Let's talk about this. What's going on?" And uh, they say, "We're raising a seed round, but we have big ambitions here." And Bill says, "Okay, Benchmark doesn't do seed. Do your do your seed round, but let's stay in touch. I want to. I'm very interested in this space." So. The seed round ends up getting done. They raise $1.3 million in total at a $5.3 million post-money valuation. Wow. <laughs> Even despite uh, trading today in the IPO, that is, a, that is a long distance. Many, many thousands of percent return from that valuation. And then on July 5th, the day after July 4th, 2010, TechCrunch writes an article announcing the launch of UberCab in this. San Francisco. It was... Um, as Brian Tolkien on our latest LP show uh, talked about, it was basically instant product market fit. I mean, the pent up demand, everything we talked about with Taxi V Magic and Cabulous, despite all of those problems and how much demand there was for that, finally, a service that is actually going to address riders and solve all of these problems. And in a city that is such a big city like San Francisco and has only 1,500 taxi cabs, mm-hmm. it, it is off, demand is off the charts. And they're about to learn the real difficulty of a high-growth marketplace business. You're never, 
in a really good place because either you have too much demand for supply or too much supply for demand and you have to sort of figure out what your strategy is to go get the 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 other side built up just in time for you to overbuild and then need to switch back (laughs) yep totally so they had hired a driver operations manager to start trying to onboard drivers and get things going in san francisco and uh it was not working out. It was not going too well. And this is where one more amazing story happens. I believe also on on Twitter, Jason Calacanis, who had obviously Angel invested in the round, he posted a tweet about the launch of Uber. And I believe that they were looking for an intern. And somebody sees that tweet again and uh, doesn't reply to the tweet, but finds, does some sleuthing, finds Ryan Graves email address. Didn't take much on Twitter to find it. (laughs) Emails him and says that she wants to apply to be the intern. And the person who does that is Austin Geit, who rang the bell on the New York stock exchange this morning. Right in the middle of the, the big group of people. In the middle of the big group of people. She is now, I'm pretty sure the longest serving employee at Uber uh, yeah, she joins that summer as an Ryan intern. Graves is on the board, but no longer an employee. Yep. So that's probably no longer an employee. Yep. Um, Travis obviously is no longer there. Uh, and I believe, I believe all the people who were all, all two other people who were there <laughs> before Austin are gone. She becomes the fourth employee of the company. And her story is just amazing. It, it, it's been told, but we're going to tell it again here because, um, this is an incredible story. Uh, Austin grew up in Marin, uh, in Marin County, just north of San Francisco in the suburbs. And um, she went to she went to Berkeley for undergrad. And a short time into her into her time uh, at Berkeley, into her college career, she developed a pretty serious drug addiction. And she's very open and honest. So she gave a, was given many interviews about this and a great talk at, at Fortune about this. And uh, it, it basically ruined her life. And she had to take, she dropped out of college, took several years off of college, worked with her family and got completely sober. And then she returned to college in her mid twenties, ended up graduating from Berkeley at age 25. And it was that summer of 2010 when she graduated and she saw that tweet and she was, she had, I believe the story is she'd applied to be a barista either at Pete's or Starbucks and gotten rejected <laughs> uh, mm. to even go be a barista at, uh, at uh, I believe it was Pete's, but ended up getting this internship at Uber. And, uh, you know, she says later in, the, in this fortune interview, she said, I think this is just amazing. She said, I'm, I'm so proud of the work my team has done at Uber that I've done at Uber, but it's not the proudest thing I've done. I'm more proud of being sober and being able to share that with my family means wow, a whole lot yeah. more. And it's incredible. So Austin would join as an intern. And then we mentioned a, a, a few minutes ago, the first driver operations manager who was onboarding drivers to try and just get supply to keep up with this crazy demand wasn't working out. Austin takes over and becomes uh, the first um, successful driver operations manager in San Francisco. And then would go on to lead and run the launch team uh, for Uber. And she launched, uh, I believe, just about every city that Uber operates in around the world. Um, Incredible. Okay. So things start getting going on the driver onboarding front in, in San Francisco. By the fall, in October of 2010, people are starting to notice this is a big thing in San Francisco. And other people who are, in particular, people who are starting to notice is the taxi industry. <laughs> and so they, uh, taxi cabs, they show up at the city regulator's office and they start lobbying and say, you got to shut these guys down. They're taking away our business and what they're doing is illegal. And so on in October 2010, uh, while there is a board meeting for Uber going on and, and Ryan Graves and Travis and everybody are at First Round Capital's office uh, in the middle of the board meeting, 
the Uber office gets raided <laughs> and regulators show up and they issue a cease and desist order. I believe they have like a headshot of Ryan Graves there and they're like, this is a wanted man. <laughs> and they say that Uber has to shut down and stop operating because they are not following the rules, quote unquote. And to the company and to Travis's credit, again, given all of his background, they say, what rules aren't we following? <laughs> you know, Travis is that he, he he would talk about this in an interview later. You know, this he says this feels like a quote unquote homecoming for him. Uh, you know, after his experience at Scout, <laughs> and they had been really careful. And this is this is another point that has been completely lost in the last yeah. couple of years of Uber. They followed the rules. They were not doing anything illegal. They were operating in the black cab market that was regulated by the state, not the city. They were not a taxi company. And they had been very careful about what they were doing was certainly not envisioned by current regulations, but it was not against the rules. And so they fight this and they end up winning because... Like I said, the city had no jurisdiction over what they were doing. It's they were amazing. using black cars. Like, given the 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 narrative around this company, that is like a completely lost fact to history. Yep, uh, completely lost fact to history. But super important for two reasons: one, because they win and they do not get shut down. The state of California allows them to continue operating. The other outcome of this is, you know, I mentioned those quotes about Travis saying this felt like a homecoming. This is what pushes Travis over the edge to decide. You know what? This is going to be huge. I'm I am born to do this. I need to come in and be the CEO of this company. <laughs> the company got raided, and the you yes know, officials <laughs> this were is there. How there Travis's was a mind works. <laughs> you know, they were looking for this. The CEO. He was a wanted man. I want to be that guy. That's it. This is the company for me. <laughs> like like he said, it, it was a homecoming because he went. He was in the meetings with the regulators, and he thought, "I can do this." So he comes in, he very amicably with, with Ryan, uh, you know, he'd hired Ryan. Ryan becomes, I believe, SVP of operations. And um, yeah. and Travis comes in, becomes the CEO. He negotiates. He already had a 12% stake in the company from his advising and angel investment. He negotiates. He gets a 23% stake in the company. This is post-seed round uh, as CEO. And um, he basically says he's going to devote his entire life to making Uber as big as it possibly can be. He actually, he, he, uh, Brad writes about this in the book. He broke up with his longtime girlfriend and he explained, this is a quote. He said, I realized I was more passionate about this company than I was about her. I should probably find someone I like at least as much about my job. But this is probably no, no mean slight meant to his girlfriend, but this is the mindset he's in. He said, this is his life. Now he is, his mission in life is to build Uber as big as it can possibly be. You're getting a lot of color on this guy here. Totally. Uh, <laughs> so the growth continues. They go out in the beginning of 2011 to raise a Series A. And based on reputation and on his dinner with him early in the year, Travis's goal is Bill Gurley. And he wants Benchmark to lead the Series A. And uh, he meets with other firms. He, Travis also talks about in interviews about the importance of running a process, but he always wants Bill to lead. And... Bill and Benchmark do end up leading, and he's Travis is asked later, "Why'd you pick Benchmark?" Jason asked him in this in this interview, and his answer is because they're the best. It's not even a close call. And Benchmark ends up investing eleven million dollars at a sixty million dollar post. This is in the beginning of twenty eleven for an eighteen point three percent percent stake in the company. Now that was 
almost mm-hmm. unheard of in those days. A mm-hmm. Series A at a $60 million post. I was at Madrona at the time. We were doing Series A's at like three a or 12 post. And then they were yeah. three or $4 million investments. Indeed, indeed. So this was a huge, well, you know, laying of cards B- on the table. Bill had found his company. I mean, I think one of the other things that I remember when I first read Brad's book, uh, the, the Upstarts, and realized all the work that Bill had done for five to 10 years before making this investment on the industry. And it was the first time that it really hit me that truly great investors form an opinion about how the world will be and then go try and find the company that they believe will execute to, to, to create that future. And I think, obviously, there's lots of ways to be a great investor, but, but um, you know, learning that that is the approach that, that Bill took here, it's, uh, and the traction they had, of course, but it's no surprise at all that it's a big check at a, at a healthy valuation because it's, it's sort of the consummation of this year's long search. Yeah, he was ready to go all in. And I remember, so New York was the second city that uh, when, when they raised the Series A, it's clear it's clear to Bill, it's clear to Travis, it's clear to everybody else in the company, this is working. We now need to replicate this in as many cities around the country mm-hmm. and world as quickly as possible. We need so Brian to Tolkien. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, well, and, and, and all already, fortunately had Austin Gait, uh, yeah. who led the launch team. So they go to New York next. The third city is Seattle. And I remember so vividly, Bill sending an email to Tom Alberg uh, at, at Madrona, who we had on the show for the Amazon IPO, uh, founder of Madrona, saying, and Bill and Tom knew each other from Amazon and from from several investments over the year, years, and Bill emailing Tom when, when Uber was launching in Seattle and saying, I think this is going to be a comp- the company that is going to be as big as Amazon. And it's coming to Seattle. It's going to be the third city. Would love anything you can do to help uh, at Madrona with Amazon, everybody to help uh, to help bring Uber to Seattle, mm. and it's just incredible. Mm. And I, I vividly, you know, Tom forwarded the email to um, to everybody at Madrona, and I remember seeing, and I'd heard of Uber at that time, of course, and I was like, wow, that is that is a really ballsy and involved move for a board member to do, and uh, to try and drum up support. And uh, obviously, Bill was right. Yep. In February 2011, uh, I believe, right after or during as this round was closing there's an amazing video we'll link to in the show notes uh, that austin guy took on her phone of they do an uber happy hour and uh, in san francisco and uh travis uh is is kind of giving the welcoming kind of 10 minute talk at the, at the happy hour they have all the early employees they have the rider community in san francisco they have the top drivers there he brings everyone up he's super magnanimous he thanks them he thanks the drivers and he says kind of at the end of it he says you know we're here in san francisco this is great we're going to be very soon in 15 to 20 cities, not only in the U.S., but we're going to be all around the world. And this was, you know, we'd asked Brian uh, Tolkien on the LP show, you know, was there a moment where was there ever a debate at Uber that they would go global or not? Because obviously no other ride-sharing company really did. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, if there was, it was before I got here. There never was. It was Travis's goal from the beginning was this is working. This is global. We're going to go everywhere. What, what was Brian's quote? The culture was, if it's a city and it's big, we need to be there yesterday yep and that is that is exactly um that is exactly what happens so first new york then seattle then chicago boston uh and then paris is the i guess that would be the sixth uh city and that was that was a huge uh, a huge moment for the company and um and and travis was insistent 
that they go to Paris and they go to Paris then and they go international and everybody else in the company was saying, this is crazy. We can't go international. We can't go to Paris. We were like barely live in the US. And he said, no, we have to do this. We have to do it now. And we have to, I, th- I believe the directive was we're launching in three weeks. I think it was for LeWeb in 2011, LeWeb, that they had to launch for the LeWeb uh, conference there. And they did it. Um, and that was the beginning of Uber being an international company. Hmm. So by that time, this is now the end of 2011, Uber is already doing $9 million a month in bookings and almost $2 million a month in net revenue <laughs> for a company that is essentially one year old. The traction is just, uh, just incredible. And they're launching cities all over the world. And um, this is actually the moment where Travis starts thinking, you know what, this is, we're going all in pedal to the floor on ride sharing around the world, but this can be bigger than ride, ride sharing. You know, and he gives a quote in the Jason Calacanis interview. He says, we're a logistics company. And he says, you know, obviously there's ride sharing, but he says, I want stuff brought to me. Maybe there's, there's one that's, you know, even more focused. Uh, they were talking about examples of stuff that could be brought to you. And he said, yeah, you could do anything like Cosmo.com did, but maybe there's an even more focused service we can provide mm-hmm. where you could say, you could say delivery of food as an example. Like you like to eat at a restaurant. They don't do delivery. We have liquidity in cars, so we can make that really interesting. Mm-hmm. This is the end of 2011. Wow. And, uh, and that was the beginning of what would become Uber Eats. And it's so interesting too. It's comments like this that, that, Travis and others at the company would make saying, oh, we could move anything around. And then they wouldn't say anything for a year. And the whole like tech world would get up into a tizzy of like, ooh, Uber's <laughs> going to launch like last mile UPS and deliver. It's going to be a courier service that moves anything around a city. And and it, it, I mean, it, that sort of went away with the transition from Travis to, to Dara. But that always did seem like probably a red herring that that was somehow bigger than moving people around was moving non-food stuff around but mm-hmm. that was always the like what if they expand into everything yeah well and it turns out i mean I, maybe eventually they will do everything but uber eats is a monster of a business that so f- we'll get into so quickly and is is a huge part if not all of uber's growth at this point and just kind of amazingly prescient that even that early one year into the company, they were already thinking about it and starting to work on it. So that, uh, at the end of the year, they end up raising what again was, you know, the series a was a landmark series. A the series B was almost as much of a landmark. They sell 10% of the company in around, they raised $32 million of the $322 million post money valuation. It's led by Shervin Pishvar at Menlo Ventures. So they only sold 10% of the company in the series B, which was crazy back in the day. Um, and they now have this huge war chest and then they just keep going city by city by city. They launch LA after that. LA, as we've talked about on other episodes, Uber completely transformed LA. Is the series B, before we move on from that, is the series B the one with the crazy like last minute change on who the investor was yes so we i was going to get into this so it was okay. going to be andreessen horowitz yeah uh yeah. i think we'll, this is uh, telling <laughs> well i was going to tell it a little later but we'll we'll jump ahead now so yeah travis wanted andreessen to lead the series b and as the story goes andreessen was in to do it at a roughly 300 million dollar valuation but there was a dinner supposedly between mark andreessen and, and travis and after that Andreessen Horowitz decided to lower the offer into a valuation in the low 200 millions and uh, also wanted to include a much larger option pool in the company. And uh, Travis would have none of it. And that wow. was uh, that was the end. And of course, and then as we're about to see, Sh- Andreessen Horowitz... Like- 
like planted the seed with Travis before. Like, well, if anything yeah. weird happens, like you know where to come. Yeah. You know where to you know where to find me. And and um, so Travis called him up, and and they they did the deal. Andreessen, of course, then would um, regret that uh, decision, but not for too too long because shortly thereafter they would invest in Lyft and they would lead Lyft's first round after pivoting into peer to peer car sharing, mm-hmm. um, and are still one of the largest shareholders of Lyft today. So, but back to Uber, this is I would say the the apex of the original Uber. So we're now they're at an unprecedented revenue growth rate their GMV and revenue growth rate. They're raising unprecedented venture rounds. They're global. They're on the path to world domination. Mm-hmm. They're at this point, I believe at about a hundred million dollar net revenue run rate. So like they could go public at this point in time by the old set of rules. <laughs> say, if this were a different point in history, they would have, they would have, uh, and maybe they were even thinking about it, but <laughs> then history turns on a knife point once again. And we will refer listeners to, our episode about a month or so ago on the Lyft IPO. But this is now early 2012 and Homobiles has <laughs> seeded the concept of peer-to-peer car sharing with Sidecar and Sidecar has seeded the car, the concept of peer-to-peer ride sharing with Lyft and Sidecar which and sure Lyft. feels a lot less legal than what Uber is doing. <laughs> it less sure does book. feel a lot less legal. Yes. But nonetheless, Sidecar and Lyft launch in San Francisco in the spring and summer of 2012. And it is, you know, we spent all that time describing the regulations in the taxi industry and in the uh, black car industry earlier in the episode. Peer-to-peer ride sharing is completely ignoring these regulations and definitely illegal. You could argue whether Uber was in a gray area, it was not regulated, but it was not clearly illegal. What Sidecar and Lyft are doing is clearly illegal. (laughs) Nonetheless, though, Uber and Travis, you know, because of their personality, they've, there are a lot of people in certainly the taxi industry, but especially in regulators and city governments who don't really like them. (laughs) And they're sort of, I wouldn't say happy to see something illegal happening, but they're happy to see competition arising and legitimate threatening competition to Uber. So what happens next for the next six months or so, Uber and Travis fight really hard to get Lyft and Sidecar shut down. Uh, and they are lobbying with regulators <laughs> on the side of regulators for protectionism. It's crazy. Uh, and- this is like total, like the, the history is like glossed way over this, like Uber and the regulators trying to shut down Lyft. Yes, totally. And, and, and it makes total sense from Uber's perspective. And I think, uh, according, according to Brad, you know, Bill Gurley drove a lot of this thinking on the board they were terrified of anybody undercutting them on price. And what peer-to-peer ride-sharing enabled was an undercutting of price. And uh, so this was a huge, huge threat. And they had realized this when Halo moved over from London to launch in the U.S., working with taxis, but doing it with a lower take rate. I believe Halo had a 10% take rate yeah. and trying to undercut on price. And that was in response to that, Uber had rolled out what was then UberX. And UberX was cheaper cars, Toyota Priuses, uh, still with licensed drivers, but to compete at a lower lower take rate margin oh. with Halo. I don't think I knew that UberX was licensed drivers when it first launched. UberX was licensed drivers. It was not peer to peer, and huh. the original the original purpose of it was to was to compete with Halo. This massive fear of undercutting on price 
is such an incredible foreshadow for the financial position that the companies are in today. Because ride sharing, as it turns out, is an incredibly price sensitive market. If you open both apps, one's a buck cheaper, and it's the same, you know, relatively the same distance away, you just do it. Like there's there's um, so little gripping you to one platform or the other, and that's one of the reasons why these companies are spending so much money competing with each other to acquire and retain customers. Like it. You can see it all the way back back in this era. Totally. And so this is this is the moment where everything changes. So, you know, <laughs> Ben, we joked about unit economics uh, and the the table yeah, napkins I, I in Paris earlier. There, yeah. <laughs> the before this happened, the trajectory that Uber was on was the beautiful, typical Silicon Valley story from you know that point up up until that point in history. They had a beautiful marketplace-based business model. They were not taking inventory. They were working, you know, they were pushing the edges of regulation, but they were working within regulation. The unit economics were incredible. Uber was on a $100 million plus revenue run rate. I assume not profitable because they were investing so much in growing cities, but they probably could have been. And I remember people talking about cities being like wildly LTV profitable. I mean, I forget numbers that were thrown around that I'd heard, but you know, nine, 10 plus X LTV to CAC for riders in, in riders and drivers in San Francisco. And, and for folks sort of on the, on the fringe of the biz here, that's lifetime customer value to cost to acquire a customer. And if it's, t- if they're, if your customer lifetime is 10 times the cost to acquire, that's a great business you got there. An, an incredible business. And it was also an incredible business for drivers. There were drivers in San Francisco and other cities that were making hundreds of thousands of dollars on the platform. So much so that drivers were going out and they were, you know, Uber talked about this and Travis talked about this, kind of becoming their own little mini entrepreneurs on the platform, you know, kind of like to Airbnb's chagrin, like yep. property managers in Airbnb, <laughs> because they knew that if they got more cars on the system, they could make so much more money. It was really working for everyone. Then when peer-to-peer launched, it completely shifted the dynamics of the industry, one, by changing the unit economics, but even more so by impacting, like it opened the floodgates of supply. So now you had, and and listener and and, and friend Max Wallace emailed us about this, this was the huge change that peer-to-peer ride-sharing brought before all of the innovation that was happening with Uber was net good for most players in the industry. Like I said, the drivers were doing much better. But now when the floodgates of peer-to-peer opened, all of those gains got competed away because the playing field on the supply side just got massively, massively expanded. Mm. And because of that, then there was also the competition for the demand side between Uber and Lyft and Sidecar and and Didi and everybody internationally. And so they had to spend, the companies had to spend so much on subsidies to bring in riders on the demand side and it completely changed the unit economics so what happens well well they don't ipo they don't (laughs) ipo no and the for a while uh for a number of years the wisdom becomes certainly at uber and and to a certain extent at other companies too certainly at uber certainly at Didi. the way we can win this is this is a war of attrition we will raise so much money. This we talked about on, on the Lyft episode. What was it, like 16 times the amount of capital that Uber raised versus Lyft uh, at one like point that. in time? Yeah. Something like that. That we can just we can just uh, blow away our competitors and crush them into oblivion. And once we've crushed them, then the unit economics will become more stable and we can return to profitability on these platforms. Shouldn't be long. <laughs> Shouldn't be long. So in August of 2013, (laughs) Lyft raised the $60 million from Andreessen in May of 2013. In August of 2013, Uber raises $258 million led by Google Ventures with TPG coming in, the private equity firm. 
And this is the start of this. Instead of just investing those $260 million in the U.S. and competing with Lyft, though, remember Uber is now international. And Didi in China starts raising huge amounts of capital. So Uber is now spreading this capital fighting land wars yeah uber's all doing a multi-front war like they have to capitalize wars on all these different borders all of these all of these different borders and, and we uh, should say too they are maintaining a very strong leverage position in this negotiation they, they raised that whatever 260 million dollars on a 3.7 billion dollar post money so this is like you know they they just got a 10x from that previous round where they were valued at 350 million totally which it was uh what five six x from from the series a yep and and that would have been you know and i think people thought about it at the time like oh wow that would have been like if they had gone public maybe they right. would have gone in public at a relative market cap like this i guess this was just sort of a you know private ipo type thing it turns out that was far from the end of the capital raising and uh we'll skip over a lot of this here in the interest of time but go go listen to our lift episode go listen to way back our dd episode that we did with with brad stone and brad really was the foremost reporter in talking about the yeah. dynamics between uber and dd it ended up the amount of capital that they were raising from sovereign wealth funds from huge from hedge funds from huge you know entities uh, pumped the valuations of these companies so much over the next couple of years, Uber ends up raising $20 billion in total. Ben, as you alluded to at the top of the show, uh, the valuation peaks at $72 billion uh, on the private markets. But all of this capital is going into fighting these wars. And and to list sort of the folks that start coming in here, you know, we were talking about this is an era where you would go, go public. I mean, GV made a crazy bet putting an abnormally huge amount of their fund if not like all of the remaining there's there's a but there's something wild that happened well i believe gv operates on an annual uh budget cycle from from okay uh but but yes they put in a lot of money yeah and then you start to see in june of 2014 fidelity comes in and this changes everything for startups i mean we we talk about the era of stay private longer and why all all these companies ipoing now and why haven't they ipoed yet the next set of investors would be fidelity t Rowe price goldman sachs then you start getting into these sort of international uh you get times internet tata capital uh, uh tiger SoftBank. i mean the the, the, it, the list goes on and on from when you, you get the not raising from venture capital the saudi arabia public investment fund comes in and puts a lot of money into one of these uber rounds while they're fighting billion. with didi that was before the SoftBank vision fund mm-hmm. and of course who is the anchor investor in the SoftBank vision fund it's the saudi arabia saudi. public investment fund yep 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 i think this is an interesting point um a few people have asked David and I, and I think um, there's a lot of good answers floating around, but why is this happening now? Like, why is this whole A-plus saga, you know, happening in this, like, four to six-month period at the beginning of 2019? And I think there, there, there's a few reasons. One, it's been this bull run for over a decade, and, you know, people want to get out before the, the music stops. Companies used to IPO you know, after three or four years after being founded, especially you look at like Amazon, Mm -hmm. it was 94 to 97 or something like that. Now they're a decade or more. They've taken private funding for a long time, but there is a, there, there is a uh, time limit to the amount of time that private investors are willing to wait before getting liquidity. Mm -hmm. And we're learning that time is about 10 to 12 years after a company has been founded. So a lot of these companies all were started right around the same time in this two-year window following the 2008 recession, and a lot of them stayed private longer, took private capital longer, mm-hmm. and 
you know, they're facing pressure from their board, many companies in a less documented way to get some liquidity. But Uber, in fact, signed an agreement with Goldman four years ago that they needed to go public within four years. Otherwise, if they hadn't gone public, then the the convertible Mm. bond that they took carries a a coupon that will increase over time. And Mm, I think that that's that clock started in January. So they they've been sort of racking up uh, uh, fees and debt um, if they if they didn't go public. And so that's another big trigger of this whole thing is, look, if uh, if Uber had to go, then lines up the timing for a lot of these other companies to go too. yeah. Well, I think this is what's there's there's that to me, the most interesting uh, takeaway from doing this all this research and thinking about it is that this whole era we're in now of all these new sources of capital, late stage sources of capital coming into the private venture back startup market was opened up at really by Uber and by everything we're talking about here. Uh, it had been happening slowly before then, but this opens the floodgates and it opened the floodgates because Uber because peer-to-peer ride-sharing launched and it changed the economics and Uber now needed to raise all this yeah. money. And it's just so interesting that like the narrative has been uh, these sources of capital came in because they couldn't find growth in the public markets. And like that's absolutely true. It's 100% true. That is why all these other alternative sources of capital are now have been over the last decade interested in investing in private venture-backed startups. But it wasn't like Uber saw this and was like, oh, great source of capital. I'm going to do that instead of going public. They had to. They couldn't go public. They needed all this money to fight these wars. Mm-hmm. And, that's a and r- it was really great point. that that trend is now extended to, you know, plenty of companies, even that uh, Airbnb being a great example, they also fought a war, which we will cover when we cover them. But it, it was a, a much more contained war that they definitively won. Uh, yeah. And so they didn't have these same dynamics. And with Uber for a long time, until very recently, where Uber sort of cut these deals to to merge or, or um, um, take large ownership stakes in some of their competitors in, internationally instead of competing, the thought was... Oh my God, the global ride-sharing market is one of the biggest markets in history. And it is a single market, and it's going to be winner-take-all, and it is worth just go, 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 put as much money into this company as you can because they're going to gonna take it all. And then from there, we will get to do all sorts of interesting things in margin mm-hmm. expansion over time and whatever else. It turned out that that wasn't true. Like, it's not actually a global market. They are, you know... Well, it's um, a global market, but it's not a global network effect. I I would say it's a series of markets it, it, in, in the yeah, way yeah. that sort of like information on the internet is a global market where you can put something out there and it can be consumed everywhere. You don't need to sort of like go open each market differently and have completely different products and, and marketplace uh, dynamics. And like ride sharing turns out to be a nationally fragmented market in a way that it's it's not accessible by one company leveraging their asset to just sort of scale perfectly. Yep. So I guess yep. that's that's what I'm getting at here is so then, then totally. there, there had to be this this sort of pivot later on where this company had had this huge valuation, had been massively capitalized. If they're just gonna be the North American winner in ride sharing, then they have to be the North American winner in other things and they should own other companies that are gonna, you know, dominate the other parts of global ride sharing. And so I think, you know, we saw a pretty definitive shift in strategy when it became clear that it is not one singular large market that they can win. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. Uh, both on the capital raising and then on the mergers and acquisitions and divestitures front. Yep. Um, okay. So on a normal acquired episode, I think we would 
wrap things up here in this already extended extra long episode and say come back for part two the next time where we tell everything that all of you know happened after this unfortunately we don't have that luxury because today is the ipo day (laughs) and we're gonna get this out we gotta get this out all right so here we go extra special you thought you had enough drama you didn't have enough drama what happens next we fast forward to january of 2017 the annus horribilis for uber and travis kalanick what is in the backdrop reference? of all this i'm like not i think it means just like to... a really bad it's it's a it's, i think it's latin for a, a terrible year ah. a horrible year okay I, everybody knows what happens in 2017 to uber i think having told this whole story and the, the story of travis's background and what we were just talking about of this new this new environment that the company suddenly found they thought they were gonna be the next google uh they thought they were gonna be the next ebay or amazon uh, but it turned out the dynamics changed and now they are in this incredibly huge market, but that where the, all the dynamics changed and they had to fight all these wars. I can only imagine the toll that that took on Oof. the psyche of people at Uber and in particular on Travis. And just like, I think we've seen with Elon leading up to the episode we did on Tesla. And then after that, with everything that's happened with Elon Musk over the last year, that's a lot of weight to carry, you know? And, and so I think it's, it's important to keep that in mind as we go through all of these horrible things that are about to happen. And honestly, horrible things that Travis either did or was party to at Uber. Yeah. We um, should, we should not. Cause at this point, I think we've, we've played the narrative of, um, everyone else has said terrible things about Uber and Travis. And we want to talk about a lot of the amazing things that the company and he did and a lot of the redeeming qualities. We by no means want to uh, say that he had a clean slate and like lots of people made really bad decisions and and did really bad stuff. And I think like we should, um, we should just make sure we're super clear on that. Totally. Totally. At the end of the day, everybody, everybody's a human, uh, including and especially founders uh, and humans are, capable of being very fallible listeners you should know that the uh header in david's notes for this section is chapter four the system's broken <laughs> yes <laughs> uh, i was actually inspired by a kanye west lyric there but that's another human for another day okay january 2017 donald trump has just been inaugurated as the president of the united states i'm living in paris we're recording uh, acquired episodes remotely over the oh, internet right. across continents. We have Brad Stone on the show to talk about everything we we're just talking about with Uber and the the uh, and Didi and the Uber Didi merger. What is the first thing Donald Trump does in his first week in office? He enacts the travel ban. A terrible, terrible thing, uh, in my view. Not that this is a political show, but I, that's like I will one hundred percent stand by that statement forever what happens because of the travel ban people are stranded at airports and particularly people are stranded at jfk in new york people who have been flying to and from uh countries where the travel ban uh predominantly muslim countries where the travel ban is enacted demand for uber and lyft spikes off the charts particularly at jfk because everybody's stranded there they're trying to get home they're trying to figure out what's going on this completely throws off the market and uber has you know surge surge is how they respond to to imbalances in supply and demand they're trying to do the right thing. Like the drivers are getting screwed here and the drivers are like putting so much pressure on Uber. They geofence the JFK airport in New York and enact surge pricing for JFK. The reaction to this among the public 
is not good. Now, interesting. This is a super interesting story. Um, the Lyft, of course, <laughs> does not uh, go into prime time. Is is Lyft's version of Surge uh, in JFK? Apparently, at the time, I don't know if it still is. Lyft's technical infrastructure was not architected to be able to turn on and off Surge, like draw arbitrary geofences, and so their options were either turn on Surge on like all of New York, <laughs> or don't turn on Surge, and that was kind of how. A, a, one of the inputs into how they made their decision not to turn on primetime uh, when this happened. But so Uber does, Lyft doesn't. You can imagine how this looks. The public, you know, excoriates Uber for, for what happens here, uh, that they're gouging, they're taking advantage of the travel ban. They're gouging people, immigrants who have been, been stranded. They're charging them hundreds of dollars to get where they're going. Mm-hmm. People also realize, hey, we, Trump has enacted this technology advisory council Travis is on Trump's advisory oh, council. Is he luck. in league? Is he in league with Trump? Is he like trying to profit? Is Uber trying to profit over this on this travel ban? Um, definitely was not the intention or the case. Uh, and Travis puts out a statement that like joining the group, he says joining the group was not meant to be an endorsement of the president or his agenda, but unfortunately it has been misinterpreted to be exactly that. There are many ways in which we will continue to advocate for change on the on immigration, but staying on the council was going to get in the way of that. And he resigns from the council immediately. But like the damage is done, and what emerges out of this is hashtag delete Uber. And and David, this geofencing thing, I think that's a pretty underreported little tidbit. Um, I also think like it, people still, when they hear the delete Uber, un, they link it to all the events that would follow here, and they remember something happened at the airport. But I think there was sort of a massive misconception um, and misunderstanding between the company, what they were able to do, what they were trying to do, and then what they got roasted for. Yep, totally. I I, I genuinely think they were, they were trying to do the right thing, and they were already under so much pressure from drivers about driver earnings massively yep. declining in this new yep. peer-to-peer world. They were trying to do the right thing for drivers. I really think that is the case. And this was also not like a Travis decision. This was, no. you know, this was way farther down in the company, and I think they were trying to do the right thing. However, I will However, say, the company deserved everything that was coming next, and on this initial spark... You can't start a fire unless there's a bunch of fuel around the spark to catch. And so they had accrued a whole bunch of non-goodwill from the public, from drivers, from, you know, all sorts of people that, um, you know, it it could have been any number of of sparks, but they had, uh, there was was latent bad will. Yeah. And worst inside the company. So very shortly after this, within a couple of weeks, a female Uber engineer named Susan Fowler, I believe was, was Times Person of the Year in, in 2017, I believe, because of this, mm-hmm. um, publishes a blog post announcing that this is this is mid-February, that this is her last day at Uber. She's leaving the company, and she tells her story in this blog post about how from day one when she was hired, uh, her boss at Uber in the engineering organization tried to proposition her for sex and tried to do it over text, over chat, in recordable ways within the company, within company systems. She reported it to the company. She reported it to HR. And what followed is all too common in many industries, and especially the tech industry. Nothing happened to him, and she was punished. And HR gave her the choice, uh, according to her, and she documented all of this, to either switch teams and not work for this boss anymore, but he would be fine, and she would have to change her career. Or she could stay and on the team, continue working for him, continue putting up with this, and probably be given a poor performance rating 
probably because she wouldn't have sex with him. Just horrifying. Uh, like at totally, at- totally horrifying. There's literally nothing else that can be said. And what's even yeah. worse, things got even worse from there. She continued interacting with HR. She and did end up eventually transferring to other parts of the company. This continued to be a case. HR did not acknowledge it, did everything wrong. Uh, and it went up to senior levels of the company who continued to do everything wrong. She writes this blog post. It is, that is the, if, if the spark uh, was delete Uber at the airport, this is the the bomb that goes off. And the next week, Travis meets with a group of female engineering leaders within the company. An audio recording of this meeting surfaces and it's basically not particularly flattering. Travis doesn't say anything like particularly bad, but he's also not like really empathetic to what's going on here. And it's not helped that Travis himself had made plenty of public comments over the past years about how his own sexual conquests, his own partying, you know, back to the Garrett and Travis days going out in San Francisco that started the company. And, you know, he he referred to Uber by a homonym that implies that it, it allowed him to uh, to sleep with lots of women. Not good. On the back of this, the company and the board hires the former attorney general of the U.S., Eric Holder, to, uh, who had just left, who was in the Obama administration, to come in and lead a thorough investigation into the company, into HR practices, harassment, everything going on. Okay, that's bad. Next thing that happens, we're now like a week later in the end of February, Google, remember, Google is a major investor in Uber. They sue the company. They sue Uber because Uber had acquired a company called Auto, which was led by Anthony Lewandowski, who was a former employee within Waymo, Google's self-driving car division. And according to Google in the lawsuit, he took most or all of his intellectual property that he had developed at Uber, brought it illegally into Auto. Uber acquired Auto and now had illegally Google intellectual property around self-driving cars. And and what was especially a bad look for for uber here was that auto was bought for a good amount of money and hadn't built much and so then the yep. question was like what do you okay wh- why'd they do that they basically spent i think it was 650 million dollars uh to acquire auto uber did and uh, it was it, it looked and probably essentially was uh that they spent that money to acquire google trade secrets not good okay things keep getting worse february 28th bloomberg publishes a video that has been leaked a dash cam video from an uber driver of Travis in this Uber with uh, probably intoxicated on a night out on the town, um, getting into an argument with the Uber driver. The Uber driver realizes it's Travis in the back of the car and starts talking to Travis about how his earnings have gone way down on Uber. And Travis just starts berating him and yelling at him. It's terrible. That comes out. That's the next body blow. In several days later, it comes out that Uber sponsored a trip to escort bar in seoul south korea with several senior uber executives participating in this and this has come out as part of uh, holder's investigation into the company it gets leaked to the press executives start resigning immediately and they're resigning for two reasons one so jeff jones had just come in from target to help kind of clean up the image at uber yeah, here like as this COO? was starting to happen he was i believe cmo or coo yeah. um he leaves immediately and he resigns and he says i do not want to be this is not who i am i do not want to be associated with this company i do not want to be associated with this culture i'm out of here he doesn't even negotiate an exit package he's like i don't want any stock in this company i'm gone uh other executives start resigning because they know that they did really bad things and the investigation is coming for them all told something like six or seven senior executives leave uber like within the month of march 
Next thing that comes out in May is the New York Times reports that Uber has been using software that it called internally Grayball to mask its activity. Mas- Uber was continuing to operate in cities with peer-to-peer operate in cities that shut down peer-to-peer ride-sharing. Uh, Uber was continuing to operate and using this software to mask regulators and police from seeing that they are operating. That's pretty bad. And at an abrupt turnaround from several years earlier, the company was committed to pushing the rules but operating within the rules. Then in late May, tragedy strikes. Travis's parents are involved in a terrible boating accident, and his mother is is killed in this boating accident in California. So his dad's sad. severely injured. Again, you know, you can imagine what's going on in his head through all this uh, and the pressure he's dealing with. In June, it comes to light that this is the next month. It comes to light that Uber, there was a another terrible tragedy that had happened in India where a woman was raped and assaulted by an Uber driver during an Uber, Uber ride. The company and India investigated into it, and as part of the company's investigation into what happened, they illegally accessed the woman's medical records, basically stole the woman's medical records, and they wanted to confirm that she was indeed raped because the implication was Uber didn't believe that she, that what she was saying was true. God, I have not also thought about totally this terrible. In a while and uh, like, I mean, it's it's uncomfortable to just like hear it blow by blow by blow. Oh, totally. Well, and it's like these are just facts, you know. <laughs> this is yeah. terrible. Uh, On June 11th, right after this, the Holder Report is issued to the Uber board. It's really bad. The very next day, a senior executive in the company named Emil Michael, who was involved in many of these incidents and who for a long time had had a reputation at Uber and within Silicon Valley as an effective operator, but it was no surprise that he was involved in these things. He'd been involved in a confrontation with the journalist Sarah Lacey a few years earlier He resigns the next day under pressure from the board based on what was in the Holder Report. Two days later, on June 13th, the board convinces Travis that he needs to take a three-month leave of absence from the company. A, because of everything that's going on, and B, his mother was just killed. Tragically, his father's in critical condition. They ask him to leave the company. He agrees to a three-month leave of absence. On that same day, this is incredible. I remember when this happened. I was just like watching a train wreck. The same day, there's an all-hands meeting at the company led by several of the Uber board board meetings. This is the worst. During this all-hands meeting, the purpose of which is to talk about all these problems stemming from, you know, the Susan Fowler, what she reported within the company, everything going on to talk about the outcome of the Holder Report. David Bonderman, uh, co-founder of TPG, who is on the board from TPG's investment in Uber, is on stage alongside other board members, including Ariana Huffington, uh, who I believe is the only female board member at this point in time at the company. And Ariana says to the company, quote, there's a lot of data that shows that when there's one woman on the board of a company, it's much more likely that there will be a second woman on the board. And Bonderman makes just like the most awful, awful, awful comment in Uh, that he interjects here to what Ariana just said. He says, actually, what it shows is there's much more likely to be more talking. And this is just like like this total sexist comment. Like what? This meeting was called to try and ease everyone's concerns that we are not a bunch of sexist, horrible, like what are on earth? The worst. Thankfully, Bonderman immediately is kicked off the board like that (laughs) day. (laughs) That, I mean, how you could even even go there is just beyond the pale uh he's kicked off the board that day and that is i think you know while secondary to travis i think that's kind of the last straw that like something very 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 fundamentally needs to change in the company and the only thing that is going to do that 
is a new CEO and completely new, you know, a, a decapitation of old leadership and new leadership coming in at the top. Yep. And so this this whole thing started in January. It's now June. Mid-June. And, yep. and we should like take a quick moment and say, you recall from the Lyft episode, they were on the ropes. Like they were dead. Uber was beating them. They yeah. made so much money. Like they were, who would fund Lyft? They lost. Yep. And then this Lyft had tried to sell itself. Lyft had tried to sell itself to Uber at least once, if not multiple times at this point. Uber and Travis believed that they would just crush them. They wouldn't have to buy them. They could continue uh, operating and all the problems would be solved. And Complete then all this happens. Implosion. And so on June 20th, at this point in time, you know, Benchmark and Bill Gurley as kind of lead investors have been at their wits end trying to deal with this and just a, this terrible situation. Bill had stepped off the board, fellow Benchmark partner, Matt Kohler had taken his place on the board to try and broker some kind of relationship moving forward here. They decide they've had enough. So they organize a group of of the core investors, core venture investors in the company, Benchmark, First Round, Menlo, Lowercase Capital, and then they get Fidelity involved too. They write a letter, they all sign a letter, and Matt Kohler and fellow Benchmark partner, Peter Fenton, they fly to Chicago. Travis is in Chicago. Remember, he's supposed to be taking a leave of absence from the company. He's interviewing a COO candidate for the company, and supposedly behind the scenes, he's agitating to try and come back as soon as possible and stay super involved. They fly to Chicago, they meet Travis at his hotel, and they present him with this letter. The letter demands that he resign from the company. And there's several hours of negotiation, at the end of which Travis signs the letter and he does resign as CEO of the company on June 20th. Part of the discussion was that as part of him resigning, he would be able to say it was his decision. It was part of everything personally that was going on. He'd take some responsibility, but he could say, you know, this was my decision. All of this gets leaked to the press in real time, and it becomes clear this is not his decision. Uh, This was the investors led by Benchmark forcing this upon him. This is after he signed that this becomes clear. And uh, so he, as one might expect, knowing his history and mental state, he kind of revolts and he starts calling other shareholders within the company to see if he has their support for a vote. By the way, this is all reported uh, in the press by great reporting by the New York Times and and by by Bloomberg and by Brad and his team. And uh, he calls for, starts drumming up support for a vote to come back as CEO of the company. <laughs> oh, it's just sad to talk about, but I think we have to talk about this. Uh, uh, a, because it's it's... I don't think there's any debate that this actually happened and B, this is part of the story. So Benchmark in response files a lawsuit to Travis. So once again, you have investors suing a CEO of a company, suing Travis uh, while they're investors in the company. Again, Uh, unheard of for a a firm like Benchmark to be suing a founder of a company that they had backed. But this is what it had come to. Uh, And honestly, you know, these were, this is the end of the days of of founder friendly, you know, and, uh, and I think that's a good thing. Like, it's great to be friendly founders, but there's certain behavior that just cannot be tolerated. So Benchmark sues Travis for fraud and uh, and breach of fiduciary duty. The way that that all plays out is in negotiations over who is going to replace him as CEO. So Travis realizes he doesn't have the support to come in as CEO, but he thinks he can bring somebody in who's going to be supportive of him and his interests in the company as the CEO. And he still has several seats on the board. His choice is Jeff Immelt, who until recently was CEO of, of GE. Benchmark's choice is Meg Whitman, who was CEO of eBay <laughs> and uh, one of uh, one of their you know best uh, investments, and mm-hmm. that has played a big role in this story. There is a dark horse candidate, though, uh, and, and so I think both everybody of them, knows. like I know Meg Whitman at least like tweeted like, "Yeah, I, I'm not 
like, I don't know what you guys are talking about. I'm not taking this job. Right. Like they, they both independently confirmed to the press, like, no, I will not be the CEO of Uber. And so everyone's sort of scratching their heads, like, well, who's it going to be? Who Who is going to be the CEO? And it's amazing. It is, it is amazing, like, that this does not get, not come out, does not get reported until the announcement is made on Sunday, August 27th, 2017, who the new CEO of Uber is. And it is Dara Kazratahi. He had been the CEO of Expedia since 2005 and really is an incredible story and, and an incredible kind of choice to come out of all of this and, mm-hmm. and lead, uh, lead the company through um, what was probably the most public mess <laughs> of a venture back startup to play out uh, in the press um, probably ever. <laughs> yep. So Dara's story, like we said, is incredible. He grew up, uh, he was born initially in Iran. His family was a wealthy Iranian family in the pharmaceutical industry. In the late 70s, though, during the Iranian revolution, the company got nationalized. They had to escape persecution. They move, they immigrate to the U.S. with nothing. They restart everything. It was the whole family. He grows up in the suburbs of New York. When he's 13 in 1982, his father has to go back to Iran to care for his grandfather. He didn't see his father again for six years. Incredible. Despite all this... He goes, he, he excels in school. He ends up going to Brown. He then does banking uh, after school at Allen and Company, uh, where his brother also uh, worked at Allen and Company, is now an MD at Allen and Company. He joins IAC uh, after Allen and Company. He becomes the CEO of IAC, of course, Barry Diller's uh, uh, media and internet holding company. In 2001, IAC buys Expedia with you know a lot of Dara's work on that. Dara, a couple years later, becomes the CEO of Expedia. And he is the anti-Travis. He is a super <laughs> outspoken critic of Trump and the immigration policies uh, that Trump was putting in place, obviously because of his family history and, and also because that's like the right thing. And the board tasked him with basically three things uh, to come in and do three easy tasks. One, fix the culture at Uber. Two, stem the losses that we've been suffering in these wars all around the world and focus on core markets. And three, take the company public and get this done. And so this is August, 2017. I think unquestionably he has done about as good a job as you can imagine with part one, uh, fixing the culture. I think there's still of course problems and things to be solved, but like he comes in and pretty immediately he revises the core values of the company. He settles the Google lawsuit. He retains employees. He makes great hires. And I think, you know, again, still more work to be done, but, uh, certainly compared to the trajectory that Uber and Uber's culture was on an unquestionable turnaround. Also on point three of taking the company public, they just went public today, but that really starts in January, 2018. He orchestrates a deal. There's all this fighting on the board and with Travis and everybody, he orchestrates a deal with SoftBank to come in. And so SoftBank (laughs) leading along with Dragoneer, Sequoia and Didi itself, they do an almost $9 billion transaction with Uber, same size as the IPO that just happened last night and this morning, 7.7 billion of secondary sales, much of which comes from Travis directly, but also from other existing shareholders, including the venture investors that SoftBank and others buy at a $48 billion valuation, another one and a quarter billion dollars of primary equity from the company at a $70 billion valuation. Yeah. So at some, the end of the day, s- some investment into the company to give them cash, but mostly taking yep. money off the table and at a, what a discount, like that previous yeah. round with, uh, with the DD merger had been a $68 billion post. This is a $48 billion offer, you know, Hey, take it or leave it. We'll buy your shares at, uh, at this share price. You know, it's, it's a, it's a pretty wild way to buy up to 15% of a company. Totally. They get, so SoftBank gets 15%, but more importantly, this cleans up all the problems. So Benchmark agrees to drop the lawsuit as part of this. 
Travis lays down his arms and everybody unites behind Dara as the unquestionable kind of leader of the company going forward. Amazing um, peacemaker. I mean, given the circumstance he was coming into there. I mean, kind of coming from, you know, his banking days in IAC and Barry Diller and then Expedia, like you can see how uh, as great as Jeff Himmeld and Meg Whitman are, like very few other people could have executed this, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but as well as Dara had. Now, number two on his task list of getting to, you know, stemming the losses, <laughs> uh, more questionable. Uh, and that takes us to today. So obviously yesterday, uh, Thursday, May 9th, Uber priced its IPO at $45 a share towards the bottom of the range, or equal to an $82 billion market cap. Open trading today on Friday at $42 a share or a $76 billion market cap. As we speak, I believe they are trading at... 4384. Oh, wow. No, I have uh, down to 4176. Oh, whoa. I just refreshed and saw that too. Yeah. So um, still slightly below that opening of $42 a share. Down 7% off the opening. Yeah. We'll see what happens in the coming days. Um, Yeah. we, We should say like, the first day of trading is a pretty terrible predictor of, of <laughs> as we learned on the, the lift episode. Weeks. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, or even the next year, right? Like, you, I mean, we all saw sort of Facebook's trough after, after IPO. Yeah. So there we have it. <laughs> the, the history Ooh. and facts. Wow. Oh man. What a story. Oh man. And really, what a story. And I mean, I don't think it's any exaggeration to say like the, um, certainly not the whole story of the time, but like a, one of the biggest if not the biggest stories of our time right now in you know the in the technology startup and venture capital world like this is unprecedented on almost every front yep well david should we (laughs) now that we're done with the first section of the show (laughs) yeah (laughs) i think we've probably covered uh the yeah. narrative, you know, the bull and bear case narrative is pretty, pretty thoroughly let, here. Let's, uh, let, let's nail them though, because I, I feel like it's. Uh, let's get crystal on on sort of what um, what different folks would paint, because I think we've alluded to a lot of things, but I think it's important to to sort of paint what different people uh, um, were saying about the company going into the IPO. Um, so the fascinating thing was in the Uber uh, roadshow, they were comparing themselves to Amazon. And one of the reasons was not only are we you know, going to develop into this massive global market, but Amazon famously didn't make a profit for, you know, had this razor thin, um, um, they never really made any profit for the longest time. And when they IPO'd, they were generating losses. Now, of course, the, the the fallacy there is they were not generating $3 billion of an operating loss, um, mm-hmm. but that is sort of the way that they were positioning it to IPO buyers. Um, they've also shown like incredible growth in Uber Eats. So it's already more than 13% of Uber's revenue. Um, it's only a few years old, but last year they did one and a half billion in revenue. The year before was only half a billion mm-hmm. in revenue. So just wild, you know, bright star there for, um, um, for Uber Eats. And, <laughs> uh, I have massive personal gripes with the way this S1 was written because it made my job researching this uh, uh, this episode just terrible, and they intentionally did this, and um, you know it feels not dishonest, but in a gray area, it is extremely difficult to figure out how the ride sharing business is doing um, because Uber has chosen to uh, uh, create a, a metric called monthly active core platform users, and they group core platform as ride sharing, 
Uber Eats and new methods of uh, multimodality transport, so scooters and e-bikes mm-hmm. and micromobility. So the, the bull case is that their monthly active core platform users continues to, uh, uh, to rise. I think a lot of that growth is Uber Eats, but really hard to, to, to read into that. Um, but to the extent that that's the number you're looking at, users continue to rise and uh yeah I, th- I think the other part of the bull case here is that we're still less than two years into dara being the ceo yep. of uber and his ability both through his personality but also through his background to be a, a peacemaker and a deal maker around the world and r- return the dynamics the unit economics and dynamics of uber's core operations to something much more profitable and sustainable uh, versus the all-out wars that they've been in. So, the, yeah, the thing that you, I think, have to believe is, well, look, uh, globally across all these fragmented markets that is ride-sharing, um, it's one of the largest Uber markets of uh, of all time. And, uh, you know, they're really well-positioned to be the main player in the space and own big chunks of these companies in, in other, other markets. And at some point when they are able to ramp down uh, marketing spend, they're, they're, they're going to generate you know, a lot of money. The thing you have to sort of ask yourself is, okay, well, when is the knife fight going to end? Like how, how, yep. how, what will be the catalyzing event for all companies involved to start making money instead of spending to steal share? Yep. And, uh, with the Lyft IPO, you know, six weeks or so, or so ago and them now being a public company, I don't see that happening in most U S markets any, anytime soon. Yeah. 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 Okay, well, let's go into bears. Um, <laughs> this may take a little couple minutes. So revenue growth has slowed pretty dramatically. If you look at the ride-hailing business from 2016 to 17, it grew 100%. From 2017 to 18, it grew 42%. And then over the last two, maybe three quarters, it's been basically flat. So the growth is not coming from the ride-hailing business. So if you want to believe that this is a growth company um uh, and it is because you know they're 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 on a lot of vectors it's not coming from ride sharing and you have to really be honest with yourself and acknowledge that um well and a big problem there is that um there probably is a lot of growth happening in ride sharing but they've also been losing share in the u.s in their core markets to lift over the uh over the last year so there's growth happening in some markets but attrition happening in others yes so this is something that was a little buried also in the s1 but you can find um, where they come out and say in 2017 our ride sharing category position in the u.s and canada was significantly impacted by adverse publicity events which we covered Although the rate of decline in our ride-sharing category position has since quote-unquote moderated, our ride-sharing category position generally declined in 2018 in the substantial majority of the regions in which we operate, impacted in part by, of course, heavy subsidies and discounts by our competitors in various markets that we felt compelled to match in order to remain competitive. And so... Uh, the takeaway here is I think the, the important word there is moderated. They are still losing share in the, these these core ride-sharing markets. So anyone who wanted to blame Delete Uber for Lyft's resurgence and say, but we're all good now, you know, we're growing share again. It's just not the case. Yep. Another thing, so that's looking at growth. And of course, the way that these IPOs tend to get valued as, as growth stocks. We're early in a company's life. There's lots of growth ahead. You know, they're going to get more profitable over time. Um, they're going to both get more profitable over time and continue to grow at these great rates that they've been growing. 
not like a little 10% public company growth rate, but like, a you know, these, these sort of startup, you know, growing 30, 40% per year growth rates. So I said get more profitable. Now let's dig into that and specifically into contribution margin. So the contribution margin for the core platform business, which is, of course, the ride-sharing and Uber Eats, which was 18% a year ago, was actually negative 3% in Q4 of last year. So mm. really sort of dangerous trend there where we start to see them, um, you know, even... And that's a direct reflection of, of the subsidies and competition. Completely. It's that and it's because this is all lumped together into one... Uh, category here. It's also very likely due to the the aggressive marketing spend for the rapid expansion of Uber Eats. Yep. But nonetheless, it's it's a it's you know I don't you don't want to see a contribution margin sh- shrinking as a company is getting more mature. Yep. So uh, I think those are the two biggest things: the growth and the contribution margin that are are scary from a bear perspective. One thing to flag is that a lot of very high profile investors, uh, including Founder Collective and SoftBank are selling big chunks of their shares in the IPO sort of but, but uh, they they sold them last night to new investors as in a secondary transaction rather than sort of waiting for the lockup period this i wouldn't read too much into this because they're the money's been tied up for a long time they're trying to get liquidity uh, and this is not unprecedented but it's certainly not an encouraging sign if you're a sort of potential buyer mm-hmm. yeah i agree not to read too much i mean these are shareholders that have been holding the shares for a very long time. Yes, um, super fair. But no, I think the question is a lot of the questions that emerged when the dynamic changed for Uber, both nationally in the U.S. and globally with the emergence of peer-to-peer ride sharing. Um, you know, the hope was that the massive amounts of capital raised and the operational investments would have settled those questions over the last four or five years. They, they're still very much open questions. Doesn't mean the market is still enormous and massive and the potential is there and relative to the be way way back in the beginning of this episode where there were 1500 uh, taxi cab medallions in san francisco this market is so much bigger and open but who will win and how it will play out and the unit economic uh, impact of that is is still an open question yep the other thing is there's a this isn't really a bull or bear but it's interesting to just think about this 20% of the value of this company is actually a holding company. They own 15% of DD in in China, 38% of Yandex Taxi in Russia, 23% of Grab in Southeast Asia, and that's that's 18 billion dollars of equity that they own in these other companies. And and yep. if everyone remembers the Altaba uh, episode with uh, with Yahoo and Alibaba, being a holding company that owns a bunch of other assets um, you don't get to value um, the assets at exactly what they're trading for because there's sort of inherent risk in, well, is th- is this entity going to be able to get liquid on those assets if, if they ever needed to? And so, you know, a good chunk of, of Uber's valuation is actually holding these, these uh, foreign ride-sharing companies. Yep. All right. So that's Bull and Bear. Let's go and grade this thing. Long I'll pause. Couple, yeah. <laughs> I'll make a couple points first before we we paint sort of what an A plus would look like if you know we had six to twelve months to reflect back on this thing, and then of course what an F would look like. It's worth noting that uh, every shareholder who who bought shares since gosh end of 2015, including everyone who bought in the IPO last night, is now underwater. Mm-hmm. They had a pretty terrible 
narrative leading up to this thing that was really botched where a year ago, investment bankers were rumoring that there would be a $120 billion market cap for this company when it IPO'd. And a couple months ago, the rumor sort of changed to $100 billion. And mm-hmm. then they gave guidance that they were going to have an IPO range that went somewhere from um, you know, mid-80s up to low-90s. And then they priced at the very bottom of that range. So coming into this IPO, it already felt like it had been sliding. I mean, the, pu- yeah. the sort of public sentiment was, I'm buying something on the way down. So it's not surprising that there wasn't a big pop on the first day. Uber, to their credit, was conservative on pricing, which I think was a good idea. But the question is, what do you have to believe to love this right now? And one is that ride sharing will somehow get less competitive, marketing spend will decrease. And, you know, the other is that um, they've built this incredible infrastructure and now they can really light it up with Uber Eats and other things on their infrastructure that are great businesses. But of course, um, Uber Eats is also wildly competitive with DoorDash and Grubhub. Um, So that's also not a not a smooth sailing market. What this section really tries to get after is, great, they just raised $9 billion. Are they going to be able to effectively use that? And what will it look like if they effectively use that? Well, they needed to raise a bunch of money. Like, I will say it went well by the criteria of, oh my God, they needed to raise a bunch of money and get it into the company's coffers. And they did. There's no pop, so people who bought the IPO, at least so far, uh, did not see an immediate benefit. Although you know they should be holding for a long time anyway, and we'll see what happens in a year. But uh, Uber got basically the most money that they possibly could have out of this IPO. The capital markets, yeah, yeah. If they had taken an operating loss of three billion dollars a year, oh, and by the way, they said they think that will continue to increase this year. Like they need a lot of money in order to start to pull out of this thing. And it wouldn't surprise me again if we saw a secondary offering at some point where when they felt good about their share price, they tried to sell more of the company. Yeah, it it very much could happen. And I think um I think the question is, yeah, when will when will it turn? But you know, it's it's so funny. The scale is orders of magnitude larger than Amazon. But I will say this is the Amazon story and the Amazon history. And so I think yeah, the A plus case is exactly what Uber, uh, what what Dara and and the company have been saying on the roadshow uh, and through the IPO process, which is, this is Amazon. We are bleeding tons of money, but we are building this infrastructure across multiple uh, businesses that will that will be extremely defensible and profitable in in the long term. And I think that is an incredible story. Yep. It's a very I, credible story. It's the a question people are struggling story, with is how you price it. Right Twenty now. billion dollars, and they're <laughs> yes, however, ten years old. Like, can we get more <laughs> than a credible story? I know, I know. Um, but that's the so I think so that's, that's the, the that's the that's yes. that's the A plus. Yeah, a hundred percent. And and so let's and that, get more specific on what that looks like. They are contribution margin positive on the ride sharing business some small number of years from now, and Uber Eats continues this great great growth rate that they're on, and also gets profitable. Well, and because they, I, I think the other part of the story is because they share the same infrastructure and supply side across both of those there businesses be and potentially other businesses in the future, that is going to be a very strong uh, battleship, if you will, that will turn the tide in their fight with competitors that their economics oh, will be fundamentally different. Because they can than afford to spend others. more on the infrastructure than Lyft or any of these players. Because that as they apply, like Eats. As they acquire the supply side that they're spending to acquire drivers, they're leveraging that spend across multiple businesses, yep. whereas competitors are only 
leveraging it across one business. Yeah, my other favorite structural advantage of that that I saw was somebody pointed out that um, if you can keep a rider, a driver busy 100% of the time between Eats and the core ride-sharing business, then they have less of an incentive to multi-home on, on other apps. And then if you reduce the supply yep. on Lyft, then it's a worse driver, a worse user experience, et cetera. And you can start to tip the field. And uh, as we talked about on, you know, a, another company that uh, Bill Gurley was intimately involved in on our Rover Dog Vacay episode and that I saw firsthand, that is absolutely true. If you can tip unit economics in a market in favor of one competitor over the other, yep. uh, they will tip. So I think, the, yeah, the A plus, the A plus scenario is this capital infusion gives them the resources to continue to be able to do that. And the F scenario is it just takes too long. They they yeah, they go for work. this and it it and I I think it's more likely that like given an infinite time scale and dollars they'll actually be able to do this I I think all the fundamentals hold I think the F scenario is they're not able to access the capital that they need to and I think investors stop signing up to put more cash in before the the music stops and yep. and I think that there's a very you know that could also happen I don't know what happens to Uber at that point but um. You know that that's definitely the downside scenario is they can't get it done in a short enough time frame to not need to go and and access new capital in a really either dilutive or um, or potentially company challenging way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, I think that's the so yeah. If I'm uh, if I'm in the shoes of uh, of Dara and and the Uber board and uh, and SoftBank, given their influence here, I'm I, I think I would imagine like the nine billion dollars that they just raised in the IPO. Like that's my that's my time frame. Like, yep. I, I, I think yep. you have to believe there is no more capital coming. Yep, that's a great point. So, all right. Well, the F obviously is that doesn't work. <laughs> uh, I'm sure there will be some follow-up episodes we do on this Indeed. at uh, various transactions Indeed. along the way. So stay tuned to Acquired in the coming years. But this yep. is I, just, to, just to put a bow on this, you know, and thank you listeners for, for bearing with us through this super extended piece, um, <laughs> just like the Lyft IPSO. We had to do this here. Like this is the you know, this is the, uh, not the only, but this is one of the key stories of our time. And, uh, we, we wanted to do it as justice and as be as fair from, from all sides, uh, as, as I think we could. So hit us yeah. up, uh, with any feedback, but we're, uh, we're super excited to see where things go from here. Indeed. Well, if you aren't subscribed and you like what you hear, you should, we will be continuing to cover all of these big upcoming IPOs. And if you want to go deeper on what it's like to build a startup, get interviews with expert operators and VCs, and explore some of David and my personal beliefs, you should become a limited partner. You can click the link in the show notes or go to glow.fm slash acquired. And I promise you'll be overjoyed with how buttery smooth it is to get more acquired right here on your favorite podcast player. And everyone gets a free trial. So don't be afraid to give it a shot. Um, we, uh, we've got some awesome awesome episodes coming up and uh um we'll see you next time we'll see you next time